Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Thank you so much for coming. Please feel free to um, unmute. And Abby, you had your hand up and please feel free to unmute and ask any questions. Thank you all. I will be here. Um, I'll stick around for any questions. If you'd like to share or learn something, uh, want something more depth, please feel free to ask. And also off topic, you're welcome to just talk. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi, I'm here. Um, so I missed most of that. So apologies. I wish I could have heard more. But from um, one question when you were talking about um, materiality and like kind of almost what was the word you use you were kind of saying how um, you've kind of renounced the world and then so you can enjoy it more and play in it if that makes sense and yes. um, I find myself um, doing just that but then I get uncomfortable because I feel like I'm back at the bottom of the pyramid even though I know I'm not if that makes sense so I was just curious like um, cause I, yeah, I just second guess myself at, with things like that. So I was just curious, like what you think about that. Oh, what an important question. How do you know where you are on the pyramid? You know, it's a great question. And the thing is non-duality or Tantra. It's interesting because it says you never were on the pyramid. You never will be on the pyramid. You know, you're completely perfect. You're full of attainment and this is not a progressive path. So you're not moving from somewhere to somewhere. And I know, Abby, I gave you this rather unsatisfactory answer two weeks ago when you asked a similar question. And I was like, no, there's no way to actually tangibly measure it since there's no spec, there's no linear path. But in that, while that might be absolutely true, relatively, we still need to address this relative path that we feel where, yeah, we always were enlightened, but that might not be always perceptually obvious. So there is a process whereby we get rid of a perceptual error and come into what we always were. So then the question is about where am I on that spectrum? Tantra is a very, very dangerous philosophy, very exceedingly. And it was almost inevitable that in the 12th century, it degenerated into the worst kinds of centralist black magic there could be. Um, and the reason for that is it's very easy to use Tantra as a, as a, hall pass for carnal desires, you know? So things that might not actually be helpful to your spirituality, you can rationalize away as spiritual using the language of Tantra. So that's the trick. And you're so right to ask the question. Everybody benefits from that question. So the answer is, why are you doing it? That's the, that's the where you look at it. It's like, are you doing it because you think that by doing it, you'll feel more fulfilled. In other words, is your doing of it instrumental to some other flavor of consciousness? In other words, if something were to prevent you from doing it, would that upset you? That's the question really. Because if it does, then that shows that you're reaching for something outside of yourself in the hopes that it would make you better than you are now. Mm. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Peanut. Okay, sorry. He was meowing at me while we were talking. <laughs> oh, sweet. Peanut is upset. Peanut is like... He wanted attention from like, me. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving it to you, so he was upset. Oh, Peanut, He has I'm some sorry. scars too. <laughs> truly, truly. As Patanjali <laughs> talks about extensively why we take incarnations, 
to fulfill some scars. Anyway, side topic. Um, (laughs) So you asked that question, why am I doing it? And Mm -hmm. you truly figure out, feel into the vibration of the action. Uh, An action that is aligned as an expression feels different in that um, you're relaxed while you do it. That's one key. There's Mm -hmm. no tension in the body. If there's tension in the body, that's a sign that you want something. (laughs) So there's Um, a, yeah. I I think you answered my question well. I think um, what I realized from your answer was that I was just uncomfortable with the idea that it's not obvious, which is another problem. Well, it's not a problem necessarily. It's kind of up to interpretation, but I think that's kind of where I'm getting lost is because I think um, there are certain things like, as you said, it's the intention. I do feel is there are certain things in my life where the intention behind it has improved. And like, for example, with material things and clothes and items, I feel like now it's kind of, um, improved a lot that I don't feel like I need things. And that sometimes it's something that will add joy to my life, but I know it's not the most important thing at all. And like, so that's become a lot better for me, but I think I had trouble reconciling the idea, um, that it might not be super obvious and that everyone, and I don't know why that was an issue, but that actually helped me like understand that about myself. So thank you. Beautiful. Abby. Beautiful. What a good question. And you know what the buying of stuff, like when you go, you buy something, that's an opportunity to like check in with the breath and with the body because really it's less obvious in the beginning, but it becomes painfully obvious when your meditation practice deepens what the body and breath are doing. Because even in this talk, I notice that sometimes I go in and out of that state of being relaxed where I feel a creeping tension and suddenly I'm interested in teaching you something or I become invested in you understanding something or darker still, I get kind of interested in the idea that you might find what I have to share valuable. Maybe I feel better about myself because, and and it comes, and it comes for me as a tension in the body and a certain flavor of self-consciousness. It's very subtle. But then when I catch myself, it changes. It's like body relaxes, breath relaxes, and I'm not self-conscious anymore. So it will become more obvious. Yeah. Those those are interesting. Um, those are interesting to detach from those things because I think, as a teacher, that's very interesting to hear. I don't even know. Like, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you. No, it definitely becomes an important to see the humility in the teacher, as you sometimes want to admire them so much and view them as perfect. Oh, I hope for no one ever makes the mistake of seeing me as a teacher. I'm certainly not. I'm, all I managed to do is con you all to spend three hours here learning from you. And in some cases, some of you pay me to teach me, which is best great. Scam I'm a, yeah, I'm ever. a scam. Like, this is the best contact <laughs> in the world. I just sit and smile at you. And, but yeah, <laughs> you are the teachers. And everything that you hear, you're hearing. And by the way, all the stuff that is being spoken of, is already in print. It's already been spoken. Nothing is new. And in fact, nothing should be new. If I ever say anything that doesn't like have a scriptural uh, correspondence, discard it. It's wrong. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but yes, good point. Yes. No, yes, because many people kind of view those who know more, the, sh- you know, the top chef, the smartest, the smartest student, the best teacher as almost idealizing them instead of like learning from them, like saying like, I could be like this too, or I could learn from this. I could grow with them. And it often becomes like this position of like a power dynamic of like viewing them as superior and you as inferior. 
exactly. instead of you being both as equals on different paths. Yes, precisely. And you know what? This is actually a really important point. I should say it for everyone who, because a lot of you here are teachers. You lead meditations, you're teachers. And um, Ramakrishna says, don't sound the conch in an abandoned temple before you install the deity. That's his metaphor. He says, a teacher who teaches from a place of like not having any realization is a person who goes into an abandoned temple, blows the conch and is like, come, but there's nothing in the temple. Now, this is more harmful to the teacher mm. than the student. Ramakrishna gives the example of a certain really? kind of snake and a certain kind of bird. It's Indian chatak bird, but in, in, in India, that snake, it cannot eat that bird. It's too big for the snake. A big snake can eat the bird one swallow, no problem. But if a small snake tries to eat that bird, it's bad for the bird and the snake. The snake is choking. The bird is caught in agony. <laughs> so an unripe teacher is harmful for the oh student. No. The <laughs> what? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. A, something too big for the snake can swallow will end up killing them both. Exactly. So if you put your teachers on a pedestal, it's worse for them because then they start to believe it and they're doomed. You know, if they for a moment believe that they have anything to teach, anything to offer, if they're on, then they will get stuck in that and they have that karma to work through. So teaching is actually one of the worst things you can do for your spiritual practice. It's a very dangerous thing to do. And Wait, uh, yes, that's actually we'll really good. Like thinking that you're like loosening your chains when you're actually tightening them even more and falling mm-hmm. into ego. That's interesting. Yes. Also, I the other somebody else had this question. When do you start these meetings? Because me and the other person always seem to come up late. I always because I always look at your TikTok live streams for, and I was like, okay, he's doing them now instead of. <laughs> yes, yes. I like how Claire and Austin had a little uh, Texas draw. Uh, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Moment. Who won? <laughs> oh, okay. Seven p.m. <laughs> oh, Austin pulled, pulled the trigger. Who can say who shot first, Han or Greedo? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Anushka, I hope, I, wait, I have to answer Travis and then I'll come to you, Anushka, because Travis had the question about the desire for liberation. Um, and Han shot only. <laughs> yes. Left-hand path, right-hand path, Tantra. We should have this meme where it's like dualist, non-dualist, who shot first. <laughs> Anyway, um, Travis, the answer to that question about desire, did you want to articulate it again? Uh, I don't know if I remember it precisely. Yeah, you sent it in the chat a while ago and it was, what about the desire for liberation? Right. You know, and the answer there is that some samskaras are better than other samskaras. It was about freedom. It was about freedom. And the fact that aiming for freedom brings you into the desire for being free. So true freedom is freedom from the idea of freedom. Yes, precisely right. And they call this the golden chain because as long as you desire to be free, it's very pure, it's golden. It will always put freedom out of your reach because every time you hold this idea that freedom is out there and I desire it because I don't already have it, you're in a framework that is error. You know, like you're seeing desire as time bound. I will one day be there or I will get it, but it's here all along. So the or only I had thing, it. Oh, I had it. Now I don't anymore. Yes. Yes. I had it. I want it back or I don't have it. I, both of those statements, I had it and I will have it, put, desire, put, put it in time. 
So the problem, Travis, is not a desire for liberation or desire for freedom, but the bounding of binding, sorry, of freedom to time. I see. Yes. So the really mature spiritual practitioner must also go beyond that. They must get rid of their desire for liberation. That's why Tantra and non-duality is good for you. If you're resonating with it, by the way, if Tantra and non-duality resonates with you, it's probably because you've already done a lot of spiritual work and you're starting to like, this is the last step. For a lot of people though, this shouldn't be offered. For a lot of people, we should encourage positive samskaras. You know, like desire God, desire liberation. Like these desires, if you're going to desire at all, are worthy desires, you know. Yes. Did that do it, Travis? Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Yes. And then let's do Anishka. I hope I'm saying that right. Please correct me. It's Ansika. Ansika. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank Ansika. you. Hi. I just have a quick question regarding the person that was speaking before Travis. Yes. Um, I, I, I am trying to get on the right path, obviously. And, you know, sometimes I do get the desire to just spoil myself and get things that I don't even need and all that. And part of me also wants to be like, hey, you don't need that. All those things. And I'm new to this. So pardon my lack of vocabulary from this. I'm new um, as well. Don't worry. <laughs> thank you. Um, so it's like I want to be able to live on what I need and practice like peacefulness and be able to experience serenity. So, but also if I'm on TikTok and it's just like, I want to buy this. I want to buy that. I want to buy this. I don't know how to just down myself to be able to help myself to um, not become, how do you say that? Uh, materialistic? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and oh. just uh, help yourself just become the tantra. When you talk about tantra with the mind, body, and soul, I want to practice that because I want to be able to find myself and not depend on other things. And that is a hard thing that I'm dealing with right now. And with my grandma dying this morning and me wanting to just go on a shopping spree to deal with it. I, I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know if anyone has an advice for that or practice. Cause I do meditation. Of course I do that. But I, I go off, I feel good for a good two hours, then that's it. It's mm. over. <laughs> like, yes, yes. Beautiful question. Would, uh, would you be open to doing a, a Gayatri Mantra for your um, grandmother right now in this moment? Just holding a moment? Sure, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes. It's uh, very customary in our culture that we, we celebrate a passage between realms and we always wish those who are traveling well and to help them on their journey, we like to send them as much good vibration as possible. You know, right. um, say, parasam gate bodhisvaha. Hail, hail to thee who art the goer. Safe travel, safe journey. Um, pioneer the path for us. Om Bhur Bhuvasvaha 
Tatsavitor Varenyam Bargo Devasya Dimahi Dio Yona Prachodayat Thank you. How beautiful. So much love for your beautiful grandmother. Thank you so much. Now, um, to your point, it seems like you are certainly on the right path. Your thinking about it is certainly correct. And your desire to practice Tantra delights me deeply. It's a very, very uh, involved path. Now, um, one thing we might say here is that do not, under any circumstance, give up your desires. So if materialism is the problem and you notice a pattern of buying stuff or consuming, um, and as you mentioned, spoiling yourself, and you know that that pattern is not quite serving you, the last thing you should do is try to repress it or try to stop doing it. So if you, for a moment, realize the pattern isn't serving you, it can do something in your psyche where every time you do it, you might become hard on yourself for doing it. You know, um, and that's very yeah. Dangerous. That's the thing. Like every time I do, like you know, the desired part of me does whatever I do, and the other part of me is like, why did you do that? It exactly. was not needed. Why didn't you just go to this path? Why didn't you just become a better self and practice something to be become a self? Like so, it, like it's like guilt and yes. it's like all that all exactly. the desires clashes. So it's very hard to deal with. Yes, yes. The first thing is this guilt must go away. So this guilt is an error. And to fix this, I'll give you this practice. So um, the most dangerous thing in spirituality is guilt. It's, It's an emotion that ought not be here. It doesn't help. Punishing never works. Uh, and it doesn't, it, it seems like that's what you ought to do. Like you want to train yourself to be a certain way. So there's a psychological mechanism in which you punish yourself for not being that way. We do it with our children and we do it with our partners. You know, when our romantic partner isn't behaving the way we want them to, we like punish them with sadness and silence. And we love to punish kids, you know, never works, but it's a strategy that we learned because that's the way that we were raised. And so it's a strategy we employ with ourselves. The first thing to do here is to stop identifying with the person who is doing the pattern. So start to refer to yourself humbly in the third person. You know, yes, Travis is suggesting a really good one too. Yes, yes. That's the tantric solution. But the first thing my non-duality compels me to give this to you is stop seeing yourself as the agent in your life. It isn't you that's shopping. It's not a failing in you. It's not your fault. Um, It's a samskara. It's a pattern that is expressing itself through you. In other words, the shopping is happening. You're not doing it. You just compassionately watch that it's happening. This is a big celebration. Because a lot of people don't yet have this self-awareness. They just do their patterns and they don't even consider how those <laughs> patterns are harming them. So in your case, and can I uh, please correct me, Ern Sika, yes? Yes, that's Okay, good, good. I want to get it right. The S-Y in Sanskrit is often Shia. 
like Mother Shiyama. So uh, I like that though. <laughs> I really like it. But yes, Ernsika. But so you would say something like, "Ah, look at that! Ernsika is on Amazon again, buying stuff." <laughs> and then when the stuff arrives, enjoy it. Be like, "Ah, there's Ernsika enjoying Ernsika's new insert blank." And then when the despair comes, I'm like, "Oh." You watch yourself. You say, "Ah, there's Ernsika despairing." Now, in all that, all the moments of that pattern patterning itself, something has changed. You have stepped back and away from the pattern, it enabling you to watch it, to become aware of what's actually going on there. It's important that you hold a space of compassion for this pattern. So let it happen. Don't resist it, but first watch it. So that's your first task, just to watch with compassion and great love, as if you were watching a child spill milk across the kitchen floor. You know that you have to clean up the milk, but it's not the child's fault. It's not its fault. It's like, what's a five-year-old gonna do? It's gonna spill milk, you know. So remember, this body in Indian philosophy we say is like a monkey. It's naturally restless. But not only that, it was given wine to drink from freely. Our culture gave us the wine of desire, so now it's a drunken monkey. Not only that, it was stung by a scorpion, so now it's a monkey jumping around, drinking wine, stung by, and and that's just your predicament. But it's not you, you know. You didn't do it. It's not your fault. It's just what you find. So I like to refer to Nish as the drunken monkey Nish. This is the title that I have given to Nish. And if you spend a day with this drunken monkey, you will see that he's absolutely mad. Reaching for this, reaching for that, oh, an absolute buffoon. But with compassion, we say that we hold space for the drunken monkey niche. Remember that you, your true nature, and Sika does not need to heal, does not need to grow, does not need to be better. You do not need to be better. You're not headed someplace. You just need to remember faster that you are already the master. In other words, you just need to realize what you are not. And relax into what you are. So the first practice for you is just watch, just observe. You know. <laughs> thank you. I, I was I almost cried, but um, thank you because when I meditate, I do imagine myself because I do have a lot of thoughts in my head. So I do imagine myself in a chair and watching my thoughts in the TV when I'm meditating. But what you brought up is the love part. Because I tend to judge myself when I'm watching my thoughts. So if I, I feel like if I practice that, then it'll be better. That was so amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. So、And、when the person in the chair starts to judge, just realize that you're even then watching that person in the chair watching you watch your thoughts. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. Good,、okay. Travis. Really good. Really good. Travis has made a beautiful point here because what I'm suggesting you do, Ansika, is not introspect. I'm not asking you to be introspective. Anybody can buy a journal and like self-analyze themselves. You know, that's not what I want. What I want in this exercise, to the way that I hope that it will serve you, is that you move out of your mind because, as Krishna Das points out, you cannot think yourself out of a prison of thoughts. You know,、um, yeah, yeah. you can't counter thoughts with other thoughts. It just doesn't work. Thoughts happen at a certain plane. By watching 
And as Travis beautifully said, eventually, if you watch that you're in the chair and then you're the person looking at the chair and then you're the person looking at the person in the chair, looking at the person in the chair, eventually you'll hit a point where you are not any of the chairs. You are just that background awareness in which all the infinite regressed chairs existed. That space, that Sakshi awareness space is nonverbal is non-conceptual, there are no thoughts in it, and its vibration is already one of compassionate acceptance. You know. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. That was that was my opening. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. So much. Good, good. Um, can I add one thing Please. too? Please. Um, this isn't necessarily in super spiritual terms, but um something that helped me with this was um to kind of break down why society, because I think it's a societal thing, um, break down why, you know, we feel this way in society. And by understanding that, like, for me, it was understanding why people become minimalists um, and implementing some of those practices into my life. But by understanding that, you're able to kind of pull back the veil and pull back the illusion of, you know, why, why do we feel like we're buying into this culture? And then you're able to really, for me, at least it's being more intentional um, with what I buy and, um, for me, it's kind of about, does this bring me joy and will like, or something like lasting that I can use? Cause I, I love, I'm an aesthetic person. I love, um, like beauty and indulging in that. And I love fashion, but I have to know that the fashion isn't, isn't me. It's like, it's you that shines. Like when you think about celebrities, you don't really always think about what they're wearing. Sometimes you think about like the, the person, it's kind of like what a design famous designer said, they were like, it's not the dress, like the best designers can make the woman shine and not the dress. So I think, that's just what I have found that helps me. So hopefully that can help you as well. Yes. Thank you. I, I do like think about sometimes if I'm doing grocery shopping or like shopping, I'm like, does this bring me happiness? I will literally stand there for like literally 15 minutes and then I'll be like, ah, eh, nah, I want it. And then later on, I'll just regret it. <laughs> just, yeah, so, it's kind of yeah, the idea too, um, it's a psychology thing that when we have too many choices, we actually are less happy. It just, I yeah. found really interesting when you're th- talking about a supermarket, it's like you have infinite choices and uh, it makes it very unsatisfactory to pick things. Cause... Yeah, I should practice that. Thank you. Yes. You know, funny, Thank if you. Plath met the Zen Buddhist or something, the Zen Buddhist would come and be like, your problem is that you're trying to analyze which fig is better than which other fig. You're drawing up a cost-benefit analysis. You should, in fact, just sit under the tree, meditate. <laughs> That's what the Buddhist would say. No yeah. figs for you. <laughs> Don't do something. Don't just do something. Sit there. <laughs> it's a joke. Good, good. And uh, Austin dropped a very beautiful thing in the chat too, which is guilt only exists because you feel that you are falling short of a projected idealized form. But in a present moment, there's nothing but you and the awareness of that moment. And as Abby pointed out, of being aware of cultural constructs, beautiful. And Claire, <laughs> the ultimate heart chakra energy of the universe holding down the fort for us in vibe says, something that helped me with that tendency was to see the part I was judging as a child before you get to the meta-awareness awareness. Yes, so good. So good. Um, Claire, I didn't actually understand fully what you meant by that, so I'd love for you to elaborate if you feel Please. so. Thank uh, you. Sure, <laughs> if you'd like. Um, so let's say I do something wrong in the day. Uh, I don't know. I have tea here. I dropped my tea. And before I think like, oh, that was such a stupid thing to do, like I would never say that to a child who dropped something. 
you know, like you would never, and, and sometimes the part of you that is the most hurt or this is, so I'm gagging at myself, but like the part of you that is the most like injured or hurt or that reaches out for things slowly is just this like child, this little child part of yourself. So if you go to them and you hold compassion for them and just start seeing the part of yourself that you're being so harsh to as something that deserves the ultimate um, spell of compassion, like the ultimate open-heartedness instead of something that's so hard, you know, and so hurtful. Thank you. I kind of have something to add to that a little bit, which is kind of the same thing, but um, like how I would see it is as if, if you are in that space of judging yourself, like you did something that you eventually are like, I shouldn't have done that. Like, why did you do that? And you keep dwelling on that thought. Like, let's say you were to buy something and it's like, well, now I have less money. Why did you do that? I don't really need this. You can, that's where like the compassion comes in. And like that, that present moment of, well, it's, it's already done. You know what I mean? Why, why keep thinking about, Oh, I shouldn't have done this. Well, you did do it. What, what more is there to think about, but it's okay that you did it because in the time being you wanted that and maybe you don't want it now, but let it just sit there. You know what I mean? And, and, and maybe next time you'll, you'll know, okay, well, if I want this and I want it in this moment, okay, maybe I'll get it. But Maybe I'll realize because the last time, maybe I don't actually want, you know what I mean? But still have that, that in that regretful, oh, I don't even why, know why I put quotes around that. When you're in that like self-like um, resentment, I guess, realize that you are resenting yourself and kind of just be like, it's okay. Like there is no point for me to be upset in any way, shape or form because it already happened. It is what it is now. So let's just move on from it. And like how Claire said, like that child type of thing, be like that good parent. You know what I mean? Like, and that's how I kind of see like this higher consciousness that, that is truly compassionate is and you, the, the, the physical body or the ego or whatever you want to call it, that is like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. And like Nish said, go and get it. If you really want it, go and get it. Don't overthink it. Because if you want it, you want it. You know, so go and get it. But if later on, eventually you realize I don't want that or I, I shouldn't have had that. Well, you wanted it at one point. So why does it make a difference now? You know, and and have that compassion and sympathy for yourself. That's like, you know, it's okay. It's fine. It really doesn't truly matter at this present moment because all I'm doing is causing negativity for myself. That was like amazingly good, Sean, because I felt because from what I've learned from you guys, it's like, if you, if I want something, then I don't need it. Like, and I don't need that, I get it. Then, you know, you want it anyway, so might as well get it. And there's no guilt. But um, I wanted to point out also with the child, because I've worked with children. And that's when I realized that I needed to work on my inner child. Like, if I'm dealing with something and I'm hard on myself, 
maybe my inner child wanted to do this because I wanted to be happy. And, but at one point I'm still going to feel guilty. So that was my struggle. It's like, uh, okay. I want to make you happy because I didn't get that as a childhood, you know, like the parents just be like, yeah, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. You just need to work on this. And you don't, you don't have the freedom to do this, but now you have a freedom as an adult and you're working on your inner child or inner childhood and you feel guilty anyway. So that comes back. But at the same time, I feel like, yeah, I deserve this. So those conflicting emotions just clash late at night. It's like, oh my God. So I try to meditate and try to get guidance. And I'm so glad I found this group because I try to find a group that understands. They always say weird things, but this group has given me so much insight. And I'm like so happy right now because, oh my God. I just want to say that. <laughs> you are so welcome here, my friend. Welcome home. You know, so good to have you. Okay. I wanted to add something. Yes. Uh, before you do, Christina, I, Jana, did you want to add? Did you want to add something? Because I know you've had your hand up for some time, and I just wanted to acknowledge. Sorry, but yeah, um, I'm really engaged in the conversation, so I can't wait. <laughs> okay, cool. Just wanted to acknowledge that. Yes, Christina, please. Oh, um, um, yes, please, please. Thank you. Um, something that I had, like, a realization about yesterday, literally, like, what you said, kind of internalizing something, because a while ago, it happened to me, and, like, I was having, like, I guess, epiphanies all the time, but yesterday was the first time, like, and it has to do with this, because I was with, like, some friends and they this girl she was leading like something called ecstatic dance and she was just like oh release like whatever you think it is that you need to release like let your body talk and part of it I found myself like doing like this like weird movement with my hands like going like that it's like a like I was like in my head I was like taking off a mask, like taking off a front, like, and something I realized whilst I was dancing is that like, say like in high school, I'd identify with like being like the weird goth girl or like and stuff, but I liked it like that. But the problem with that is that like, you have to be depressed to be emo. Like you can't not, like you have to be depressed. Like you have to be. So I kept myself in a place, place of depression for so long just because of this fake, this false narrative that I wrote about myself. And then that led to like me keeping on with these desires of buying only black clothes and smoking and like all these other stuff, like that just really wasn't benefiting me. And then when I got out of high school, I've sort of found my own way. And then I realized like, I can still have a certain style without needing to be depressed if I want to dress one way one day and just another another day like it's just all expression like even buying something like like we're all just trying to express something like it's just kind of up to us to also step back and try to figure out what we're actually trying to express you know what I mean so I just wanted to add that because I really like I really I really resonated Thank you so much, Christina. Christina, you're making an important point between the difference of Patanjali and Tantra. 
because there are schools of Indian philosophy like Patanjali and the Buddha who aren't really interested in expression. They want to leave the world behind. So that's the kind of renunciation where you give up prakriti or nature or the world. But Tantra, which is a more evolved form, I would argue, says that the purpose of life is expression. And so the act of buying something is an act of expressing that you value a thing, that you want this thing and you want to support the person who's, you know. So when you live as expression, only as expression, then you're an enlightened being. It's funny that the Buddha says you should drop out, yet he himself <laughs> spent his whole life teaching and expressing and writing. <laughs> yeah. good, good job, Christina. Very beautiful. Thank you. Yes. I also I wanted to it. point out to Abby. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please, 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 please. <laughs> no, I, I also wanted to point out to Abby's um, message about the documentary on Netflix with minimalists. Um, I know a lot of people because I watch I watch a lot of YouTube videos, <laughs> but I know a lot of people are criticizing the minimalist um, documentary because they're not really oh straightforward or like why did they say the same thing. But since I've watched the first documentary and I tried practicing minimalist, like I throw out everything that I don't want, but bought it anyways, but things that I need, my anxiety was just gone for some reason after months, gone. It was a miracle. I was just like, what? Is, what? Why am I not having social anxiety? Why am I not having those thoughts right now? It's, it was just gone. And... um it's not like something that you have to throw out things on your at your house, but if it makes you happy to just throw some things out and you want to be with some with things that you need, and you practice meditation and peacefulness, and you practice love, at any negative comments or any negative person that comes to you, and you just give out love and you practice the littlest things in your life, that helps so much. That is a part of it in my life, but I just wanted to point that out because he helped a lot. Thank you. And I think it relates back to the inner child too, because it's really minimalism is so different for everyone. Um, I think it's the same way spirituality is. So it's really about like, you know, what's important to that individual person. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Advaita Vedanta would challenge the concept of an inner self, like the, sorry, an inner child. You know, the idea that, yeah, yeah. Advaita Vedanta would challenge it because to suggest that, as you said, the individual is jiva, your locus of identity or experience. Mm -hmm. So we take this to be real. It's like perceptually real. I'm over here, you're over there. And inside Mm -hmm. me is like this hurt little child and I'm going to give that child compassion. Advaita Vedanta would say, expand that concept. It's not that there's an inner child in you. You are just the child and you are not even that at all. It's got nothing to do with you. Who you really are, your awareness has nothing to do with your problems or your complexes at all. It only seems that way. When you practice meditation, the only thing you need to do is cease identifying with the mind that thinks. As long as you're thinking and you're trying to think your way out of the thoughts that you don't like, you're trapped in a game. And Advaita Vedanta says, just don't play that game. A lot of spiritual teachings are about healing or about growing or about self-help. Advaita Vedanta says, quit it. No more self-help, no more growth, no more healing. Self-transformation. Cease to be the one who needs to heal. You know, it never was you. 
So I just wanted to throw that in. I do want to take Jana and Corey though, before we circle back around, because we have kept you waiting. I'd just like to say that the child is probably two or three chairs back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Wait, how so? Sorry. Uh, so you may have a perceptual layer for how you see things or how you put yourself in the world, and it may be due to some kind of child trauma in the past. But again, that's just two chairs back of seeing of how, of how you project yourself into the world. You could be projecting yourself into the world through that layer. But again, that's just another layer in your percept- your perception. Powerful, Travis. Powerful. And this is why we have the concept of the koshas, the five bodies, where it's like when you say inner child, what you're saying is that I'm over here and behind me, a few chairs ago, there is an inner child. And in front of me, there's a world. But you're situating yourself here. You know, there's an inner world and an outer world. Advaita Vedanta says, don't be interested in the inner world from this vantage point. Be this. It's like the true self is the one that isn't any of the layers that supersede it. So we have these koshas where you have a food body, you're annomaya kosha, you know you're not that. You know you have a body, you don't think you are the body. Then you have the energy body, pranomaya kosha. You know you have moods and energetic feelings, but you know you aren't that. You know, so if you say I am happy, that's an incorrect statement. So we're trying to correct the problem on a linguistic level too. So cease making statements like I am happy, I am sad. Say instead, there is sadness in the moment or there exists a vibration of, you know, use kind of a detached statement like that. Then you have your mind. This is what you consider to be your personality, which in Advaita Vedanta, we formulate as nothing more than a collection of thoughts that you have been given by parents, culture, etc., about who you are. And as Christina pointed out, absolutely brilliantly you cling on to that perceptual mechanism then you you live your whole life trying to fix that you know so you're like this is deficient in that so i need to add other thoughts i no longer like to see myself as being addicted to x now i want to see myself as spiritual or see my but all this stuff is just labels thought labels so realize that you aren't that either. You aren't the manno kosha or the mind. Then you might start to identify with, you know, what Travis said was the three chairs back, which is your subconscious mind stuff. Carl Jung, collective unconscious. You might start to identify. Yes, you're getting there, Ernsika. That's exactly right. Every time you start the sentence, I am, you can try this exercise, write a list, I am, and then fill out the blank. The longer the list is, the further you are from your ultimate fulfillment and happiness. You know, um, if you can get to the point where you finish every I am statement with a full stop, if you truly disbelieve in the reality of anything beyond that full stop, then you have become spiritually illuminated. Short of that, the work is to get there. So that's why we stress, be careful of any kind of like inner child, self-work, self-healing growth framework but it's helpful for many, you know, so it's helpful up to a point. And uh, I'm only weighing in, in this discussion to offer. Uh, I am is not concrete. How do you mean that? Sika? Okay. Sorry. Um, so as you stated, um, you know, you have to realize um, where, where you are, like when you're watching yourself, so if you're saying I am, 
because I've, I've read a lot of books and I've been confused throughout those books. Um, if you say I am, it's, it's not something that's going to be concrete and precise. It's yes. going to be something that could change in the future or right now or in the next second or all the that. No. Wrong. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. No. Okay. Okay. No, you're, you're getting there. It's, it, you're so close. You are right. The I am can never be concrete because the only thing that can be com- concrete and Sika is an object of awareness. And you are right to point out that all objects of awareness change. Everything in nature changes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> body is changing. Every day the body changes. The mind changes even more quickly. As you said, a second later, it's going to be different. The energy changes. Everything changes. If there is a changing, shouldn't there be a change less? Aren't you only able to appreciate change in the world from a vantage point of not change? You know? Right, yeah. So what I'm going to tell you now, Ansika, is that you are the only thing in the world that doesn't change. And you are the only thing in the world that cannot be made an object of awareness because you are the subject. You are the pure awareness that can never look back on itself. Except, um, is, you know, so someone once said, if I know this, should I be, shouldn't I be aware of this all the time? And at the talk, the monk said, that's exactly what you shouldn't do because you've turned it into an object. So if you go, I am, I am, I am, that's incorrect. And the story here is this. One day, King Janaka, it's our Marcus Aurelius, great king, philosopher, sage, was repeating the mantra, so hum, so hum, so hum, which basically means I am, I am, I am. He was sitting in a river repeating this mantra. His teacher, Ashtavakra, comes by, sees him sitting, sits next to him and starts chanting, this is my pot, this is my pot, this is my pot. Janaka is like, excuse me, I'm in the middle of chanting a mantra here. Why are you saying this is your pot? That's obvious. That's your pot. You don't need to say that. Ashtavakra said, yeah, it's obvious. Why do you need to say I am, I am, I am? But you are. <laughs> but uh, it's a very, very refined place of spirituality. Does that make sense, Sika? Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, I just want to ask one last question. I'm sorry, everyone has the question. Um, no, no, this is good work. Please. Advante Vodante. How do you spell that? I'm Googling it. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. Yes, I'm so sorry. I should definitely okay. specify non-duality. Um, it is, you, Advaita Vedanta is non-duality. It was formulated by Shankaracharya in the 17th CE AD. And this is what I teach. Now, um, Shankaracharya. Yes. Um, and you also find it in non-dual Shaiva Tantra, which you can Google as Kashmiri Shaivism. You might also be interested in Buddhist Anatma theory. Anatma means no self. So the Buddha said in the mind, in the body, and the Buddha had a very complex idea of mind. He called it the Panchaskanda. There are five parts of your mind. If you investigate it closely, you will find that all of those things are changing and as such aren't concrete, exactly as you said, Ansika, and therefore cannot be you. So the Buddha's Anatma theory, non-dual Vedanta or Advaita Vedanta or non-dual Tantra all say that insofar as you take yourself to be an object of awareness, you are mistaken. You are not that. You are only the subject. 
which I think you very nicely articulated, Ansika, by saying about concrete and changing. Wonderful, Austin. Sleep beautifully. Thank you. Sir being an S-star mutable state. I love that. Jana, would you like to speak to that? This is an important discussion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of even hard to explain, but I think in, in French is a, a little bit of the same thing. And linguistically, uh, in English, there is only the verb to be, but in Portuguese and French, there is the être, sick, which is something more stable. Like you said, uh, whatever you define yourself as something. And there is a state, like I'm sad, uh, I'm happy, which is really uh, interesting. But nonetheless, both of them are connected to a subject. Oh, okay. I thought I had my, my microphone muted. No. But yeah, that's really helpful whenever uh, I'm considering that. And today that was extremely helpful, especially in the beginning of the lecture when you were talking about uh, how um, prana, pranayama works and the breathing and... I had this really interesting experience when I, I found myself getting really annoyed by something someone did, but then I just thought to myself, this will go away and I don't need to engage with this. I don't need to engage in this process because I was just, I was starting to get like, oh, I'm going to talk to my therapist about this. And this is like the 10th time it happens. And I'm so angry. And this is all, I don't know, my fault. And then I was raised like this and it, it was becoming this huge snowball and which leads me to a question that I wanted to make that I think it's a little bit related to some of the Buddhist idea of that whenever um, I'm trying to make the translation in my mind so but um, whenever you're dealing with dualistic um, types of thought or cosmologies wouldn't uh, the trying to, I don't know, trying to get away from pain or, you know, trying to release yourself from something, be a form of trying to escape from something. And wouldn't that in itself be a sort of prison? Because it would always be dependable to that other concept that you're trying to get away from. Excellent. It would just lose the the whole sense in if it, it had to be a sense or something like that. This is an excellent observation, Jana. Excellent. And any sincere student of non-duality has to ask this question. And Christina actually made a really good point with this regard a couple of weeks ago. Um, and this was the dissociation experience versus the integrated experience. Do you want to share a, a little bit about the difference between those two states? Yeah, so it's actually kind of coincidental that you pointed that out because um, so in high school, I used to suffer a lot from like, I guess like disassociation or derealization where like one minute I'll be like writing my like, I don't know, test. And then like, I'm like, I, it's like I, I step back, but like, I don't want, I didn't want to do that or like, it doesn't feel like good necessarily. Oh, good night, Sean. Um, it doesn't feel necessarily good. It just feels like I'm like, like you're not real and like you never will be. And like, this is all an illusion. It's a hologram. Like 
but it's just like that but like energetically like there's literally no words in my brain it's just like I'm like sucked from my body basically but then like on the flip side I've experienced something that's so similar to that feeling but completely blissful and like I was like like walking going to walk my dog and then I like looked out the window and I was like wow like I don't I don't like I'm not real instead of being like I'm not real it's like I'm not real like I'm I'm just here like and like it's okay like it's like a safer feeling like it's not like anxiety behind it and it's it's yeah it's kind of like what's the saying like two sides of the same coin or whatever it seems like one kind of separation took you away from whatever it is you were doing whatever you were writing down and the other kind of separation allowed you to to sit comfortably in it like you were outside walking around just like enjoying what was around you that separation allowed you to enjoy that but the other one froze you in the moment of oh i'm writing this essay or i'm typing up or whatever it is i'm doing that separation froze you from the action i don't think it had anything to do with like the external circumstance necessarily because it would just happen in my room like i think it was sort of a more like like maybe a state of mind that i was in at the time and then like changing it it was like because i still like last month like i went through like a lot and like i got like a little depressed and like like i i got like that disassociation again but then yesterday like i was with a bunch of friends dancing you know i didn't feel real but like in the best way possible so like literally what i think nish was saying like like or somebody was saying i don't know if it was nish i can't remember but like not identifying too much with one thing because you don't want to taint that presence as disassociation because it's it's not quite that disassociation is a little harmful because it could lead to bad habits and like things you do to try to feel something make yourself feel real but that it's like I feel so real that I don't even need to do anything boredom isn't even a thing like I could just sit there in my room and like be so like entertained by like presence yes you know what I mean? so. good good i really wanted you to hear that from christina because i love this um, personal feeling level explanation of the difference i'll give you three ideas jana and it will clear it up the first is that the two ends of any the two extremes of any principle are seemingly alike but couldn't be more different the second idea is that aversion and attachment are two sides of the same coin as Christina pointed out and the third thing is while it might look similar the negation of self is like being two people as Ansika said is very different from being no people or all people so those are the three ideas the first one is that um, the beginning of the spiritual quest and the end of the spiritual quest are frighteningly frighteningly similar that that's kind of the joke of spirituality In Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, the hero's journey ends with the hero returning back from where she left, but everything's different now. So nothing actually changes. So the external world, as Christina pointed out, is just the same. You're doing the same thing as you did before. It just feels different. So dissociation is very much like Advaita Vedanta, uh, Sakshi meditation. It's very much like it. Here's the difference, though. Aversion and attachment are two sides of the same coin. The reason you are running away from yourself is because you are obsessed with yourself. 
the two people that are obsessed with food are anorexics and obese people. People who are obsessed with sex, hedonists and Catholic priests. Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> Joke. But the idea is that when you want something really badly and then you run away from something, your focus is on that thing. So you're centering your experience around either chasing it or running away from it. So it's still clinging. So it's not dissociation. You're not like negating yourself. You're actually affirming the identity of yourself in the most radical and self-conscious way. Do you see? So that's an important statement. Now, the final idea for you is that Advaita Vedanta says, not just stop being yourself, be all the selves. In fact, as Christina said, be presence or being itself. So when you're sitting in the room, you if you can internalize this, you no longer really identify with your uh, locus or your perspective. So you're no longer over there and no longer am I over here. You're more the medium through which all this stuff is happening. It's a shift in your cognitive framework, so to speak. So you're not stepping away from yourself. It's actually the opposite. You are fully pervading yourself. You're embracing yourself. So another way of saying this is you used to just be in your prefrontal cortex. Like most of us only hang out in the pre, like thinking thoughts, you know, then you enter this new awareness and you move into perhaps a deeper part of the brain. And suddenly you feel like you're in your body. You think with your body, your body feels different. You're more present than you've ever been before. And you realize that everything up to this moment, you've only seen through a screen, a smoky mirror of the mind. Now that you've gone behind, or I should say in front of the mind, and you're finally in reality. And it feels like you are more here than you've ever been. Yes. Je suis en singe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. With my whole spiritual process, you just a lot of stuff. I'm sorry. Also, I want to say how... um, like she said in high school, I, I used to just do things and I don't feel like myself. Like I would just look at myself in the mirror or just do homework and I'm just like, who is this person? And then another time I'm just like, uh, I'm, I'm me and like I'm doing happy things and just I'm being happy myself. And obviously your parents are going to take you to a therapist. They're like, oh, you have dissociative identity disorder i'm just like but i still feel like me with all those things that's happening like it's not something that is going on in this per this other identity person per se like in quotes it's taking over that i still feel like me so what i did is like i it sounds crazy i'm sorry to everyone that's gonna hear this it sounds crazy but i do have conversations like what do you want? What do you need? Like, would you, do you, I become, I become comfortable with whatever mine or thoughts, not mine. Sorry. I'm like, I speak like five languages. Um, whatever thoughts comes to mind. I, um, I'm just like, what do you want? What do you need? Like I, I become comfortable with them. And then hence the anxiety because there's thoughts in my head. It's like, what if you're not this person in real life? what does this person think? Like you have those anxiety and you have dissociative identity disorder. Like you have other people just talking about you. People that don't even exist. That doesn't make sense if you think about it. 
but I just want to say that um, if you sit with yourself and be comfortable with whatever comes in your mind at the end of the day, don't let, uh, I'm not saying let it pass as like those influencers, influencers on Instagram. They're like, well, let it pass. Just think about it. But if you become comfortable and have a like, conversation with them, that's a one step to become comfortable with yourself and not be dissociative because I've driven and run into a cat. That's not a murder. I hope not. And I still didn't think of it until the next week. I'm like, oh my God, this person did run into a cat. What is going on? But at the end of the day, you got to come inside. Just come inside. Just ignore um, your thoughts, not your thoughts, the environment, and just come inside. Just think in your chest. What is what feels heavy? Because I have a lot of thoughts that feels heavy. I do, and I just wanted to say that. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to translate in English. No, I think. Tu peux dire en français. Tu peux parler en français. Je peux essayer. Yeah, je parle français aussi. Sorry. Tu peux dire en français. Je peux essayer. Yeah. Même aussi. Même aussi. Sorry. Christina? That made complete sense. Like, I, I definitely get what you're saying. And, like, I actually found that, like, having conversations with myself helped. But, like, I think last month, because it's the first time I got, like, in that state of mind again, like that, it's, like, everything I learned from, like, all the epiphanies, all that completely dissipated, like, disappeared. But then, like, Like that talk that I came for like I think last Monday, it like sparked something. And then yesterday, just hanging out with like these new people, like it's really like, I realized that like even like in our depression, in our happiness, like happiness and like sadness, it kind of just, it's fleeting. Like, and that's, you can either look at that as a good thing or like, oh man, this is only gonna, like, this isn't gonna last forever. Or you can look at it as like, like being as depressed as I was, that provided just as much spiritual, whatever you want to call it, growth as having all those epiphanies did because it led to this. And before I couldn't really give up, give up, but like I couldn't like food, like I love food and like junk food. But then today, like, and yesterday, like, I couldn't even like go near it. You know what I mean? Like it just naturally kind of like, it's almost like I had to get depressed again for like something else to happen. And it doesn't work like that with everybody. It's subjective, but I just kind of realized that it happens for a real reason. You know what I mean? So yeah, I definitely resonate with that. Thank you. Good, good. Um, I'm sorry. Um, like the brain God connection Like, you know, the brain and gut connection, like what you put in your stomach, like deals with your mood and stuff like that. If you do yoga, I don't know the exact word because <laughs> I'm fairly new, but it's like the what you put in your stomach deals with your mood. In yeah, your serotonin and your like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you mean like probiotics, like gut bacteria? Um, Partly, yes. Partly, yes. I, I don't know what what they call it in yoga the language makes, like, 
the serotonin and a lot of people say like depression is in your brain but a lot of the times it's actually in your gut like it's what you're yeah doctors are going to tell you to go eat some maybe they're going to prescribe you antidepressants which exactly exactly so when i when i stop having anxiety in like real time like i still have i still feel sadness but like when i stop having anxiety in real time that's when i became like vegan i'm not promoting vegan it's just like you don't have to eat everything that they like um tell you to eat so if you put something in your stomach that has to do with your mood because i've experienced it in real time if i have a breakfast like an avocado toast i will have so much so much better day before i put bacon and everything else that's right I quit like all of that because it's so all processed and in America, obviously I'm not promoting that you have to quit all of that. If it makes you happy, then do it. <laughs> it's your life. But, um, um, if, uh, when I did that, that made me happy. And, and also like the, your environment has a lot to do with it, especially if, if you're like an empath, empathetic person like me, I'll pick up energy real quick, real quick. If I walk into a room, I will know what's going on. It's, it sounds very superficial and I don't like preaching about it. I don't like talking about it, but the environment that I go to, I will feel it. And then if I go out the environment, I go home, then I'll feel better for some reason. And for years, I felt that for years, I felt that. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's a lot of mystery. So. Good, 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 good. All these things and more you will start to deepen in your yoga journey. I invite you to continue practicing and deepening. And you'll realize that all these notions will fall away. We don't do very well with the DSM-5. Yoga philosophy doesn't interact well with psychoanalysis or therapy. And uh, it will give you a lot of grounding for like gut brain. What's the enteric nervous system? The yogis do not centralize consciousness to the brain. doesn't think very highly of the brain. We think with our bodies, with our entire energy. And we, in fact, we have very concrete terms for these experiences of empaths, energies. What is an aura? You know, you can find very scientific, concrete mapping of these experiences. Before we continue, though, I did want to welcome Laura. I believe this might be your first time. I don't think I've seen you. Yeah, welcome to the family, Laura. Just wanted to say hello. And I know Naomi is only joining us for the second time. How's it going, Laura? Happy to be here. (laughs) I just wanted to open up the floor for you, Laura, um, in case you have any questions. I know it's your first time. Before I take Claire. Um, I was just going to add on to what Christina said earlier. Um, Just kind of feeling like, one day you'll feel like junk food and the next day like doesn't even phase you. I think it's things that I've personally let go of in my life. I find that they come back up later to kind of to see how I'll respond later. You know, are they still serving me or, you know, have you moved past that? You know, like a big one for me was that I was a, um, I smoked cigarettes for years. Oh, poor Laura. Yes, she did indeed break up. 
wait for her to come back. But uh, maybe while she does that, we can take Claire. She had a question. Actually, I think Corey was ahead of me. Okay, cool. cool, cool. Sorry, it's hard to keep track because the, the things move. <laughs> um, Corey, so sorry, my friend. I know you've had your hand up for a bit. That's okay. That's okay. I showed up late, so it's that's all right. Um, I guess I just, I just want to talk about just a lot what everybody was talking about with Christina holding on to identities that we've attached to as far as like being depressed and all that stuff. I know that path and um, holding on to, you know, being comfortable in that, being comfortable in your depression and that becoming your identity. And I've talked to other depressed people where it's like, yeah, I've made it past that, but some I feel myself relapsing back to it because it was comfortable for me to be there. You know what I'm saying? So I thought that was an interesting thing that Christina brought up. Um, also, the concept of mask. Um, it's funny because what everybody was saying collectively is what I wanted to talk about. It kind of came full circle, which my question is about a circle, ironically. Um, but first, when you're meditating, um, you talk about detaching from your, um, de- not being caught up in the mind and detaching from your thoughts. <clears throat> but I noticed my personal challenge when I'm meditating, it's not necessarily being um, caught up in my thoughts. I'm good at detaching from them. It's the emotion that anchors me back down into myself. You know what I'm saying? So I guess the first question would be, how do you bypass that? Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're probably going to say, like, treat them as your thoughts. Like, just the way you treat your thoughts, treat your emotions. But it's the emotions that drag me back into, you know, it's it, you you're you lived it. You know what I'm saying? You know those emotions very well. Honestly, wow. I actually, like, that's why I'm, like, I didn't have the realization that I needed that until I was out of it, per se, because even in my depression, like, I was, like, regressing back to old thoughts, and I was, like, I was, like, I was, like, wow, like, you did all that work for nothing, like, da 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 like, like, but and what you were saying like the emotion that it brings because it's kind of a comforting emotion at that like literally what she just said like it's a bit comforting like but the thing is you have like the thing that I found was that like am I more comfortable comfortable am I more comfortable like like in my depression where I, I I know I didn't like it. I know it was in a place to stay and I knew the inevitable or did I want like to grow? And like, the truth is, is that like, it'll come like trusting that like, honestly, it goes to what Nish was saying. I don't know like if you believe in like a higher power, but like Bhakti has like really like, changed a lot because even when I was in my depression I was still like practicing and I really think that like it helped me like realize like that like like it helped me trust something like something like that like even if it's like not like me it's like trusting that like not even something external but like that like it's like we all overcome all these things. Like it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's just like, it's just trust, honestly. Just trusting. And that trust doesn't come easily, but it doesn't necessarily have to at first. Like, 
and it's mm -hmm. very like yes we lost you <laughs> she kind of trailed off into the clouds yeah <laughs> so there's something really important to add here christina that we must remember very carefully that emotions and thoughts, we don't have two separate words for them in yoga philosophy. It's chitta vritti or chitta. This is important. This is really important. Um, as an aside though, I will just drop to earn Sika that there is no work to do at all. So remember, you do not have to work on yourself. There's no healing. There's no linear path. So all it takes is one insight to know that you are not what you mistook yourself to be. So that's an important thing just to, to, to get out. Now, with regards to emotions and thoughts, remember that chitta, meaning conscious material, is one and the same. Thoughts and emotions exist on a spectrum. So a thought is an emotion experience in one way, and an emotion is a thought construct experience in another. You know, so where there is an emotion, there is an associated thought construct. It's just that in that time of meditation, Corey, it isn't as cognitively available to you as a thought. Similarly, wherever there is a cognitive event, like a thought, there is some corresponding emotion that you perhaps aren't feeling yet. Mm, you see? Okay. So think mm. of them as one thing, which is events in consciousness. We don't like this brain-body Descartes duality where it's like, okay, you have your head and it thinks, you have your body and it feels. You know, rather, all these are just mind stuff. So all emotions, all thoughts, they're just mind stuff. And we use chit because it's not really mind, it's consciousness. It's a, let's call it a cognate or a moment of perceptual experience. How's that? Mm -hmm. So whenever you're feeling an emotion, what's actually, it's harder to work with, Corey, you're right, because we're used to maybe analyzing thoughts and we're more comfortable with that kind of you know, modality, whereas the emotion seems more embedded. It seems mm -hmm. sneakier and deeper. Yes. Yes. So remember, this is an embodied practice. It requires um, non-verbal, non-conceptual types of practice above all. So everything we talk about today, I want to make this very clear, cannot help you. It cannot. It really, all it does is take you one step further away from the truth, you know, because I'm just filling your head with concepts. Now, these concepts are only valuable to you insofar as they point beyond themselves to some non-conceptual space. So when you're sitting there and meditating and you're feeling an emotion come up, that's a sign, Corey, that we need more asana, we need more pranayama. Mm -hmm. Does that make okay. sense? Because that yes. must be dealt with on that level. Meditation is actually something that you practice after a lot of thought and emotions. Uh, I don't want to say subjugation. The Sanskrit is <laughs> Nirodaha, which I really don't know how to translate. If I translate Nirodaha for you, Niroda means to suppress. But I don't like the connotation of that word. Um, but it is maybe control. I don't even like that word. So I don't know what the word is. Niroda. It sounds like trying to make your body so tired that you don't feel anything you know what I'm saying? beyond that beyond that Corey. so it's not so much a matter of really tiring your body it's actually a matter of rewiring the way the electricity flows in your body so would you say it would be like disciplining the body it's precisely precisely it's just disciplining the body because what's going on is that the mind meaning your consciousness is whirling despite yourself you're thinking when you don't want to think you're feeling when you don't want to feel surely it's a control problem you know, the yogis are here to tell you, you can control the stuff. You just have to practice. So here's a bunch of techniques, but you really got to do them. So the, the, the thing about asana, Corey, 
in postural yoga, it's not so much that you're tiring out the body. Sure, that's that's definitely one part of it. But deeper than that, it's you're actually, and I think as um, Ernst Sika pointed out, there's an enteric nervous system and all that stuff. Essentially, what you're doing is through the postures, you're learning to move your consciousness into different um, neurological centers, if I might use that word, basically different centers of cognition. So you've got your prefrontal cortex, but then you've got peripheral nervous system. So you're getting used to feeling through the vagus nerve into the parasympathetic, you know, these kind of peripheral nervous system experiences that you feel kind of non-conceptually, like you feel stress or you feel calm, you feel anxiety or you feel relaxed. <laughs> Deeper than that, there is the enteric nervous system, which Ansiko was talking about, where there's cultural memory you know, ancestral memory, and this is where all your samskaras are. So you practice your asana in order to purify literally your um, hardware, you know, like your, your uh, muscles might be too tight and it might be pushing down onto fibers that aren't flowing electricity well. So by practicing, you create space in the body and you allow electricity to flow through you in a way that rewires how you think and feel, giving you a greater degree of control over it. Then your meditation will become deeper. This is crazy because it feels like I'm definitely meant to be here and to learn this. And I needed to hear this because, you know, if you come from black community. I'm not speaking for all black people, but I mean, generational trauma, you know what I'm saying? And I'm just now learning that at this age, you know what I'm saying? That that exists. And, you know, we carry that, you know, in your mother's womb, what your mother's been through, probably that type of stuff. It's in my body. And I always noticed that there was blockages in my body. And I feel like every time I talk, I'm always like, when I did shrooms, but seriously, when I did shrooms, <laughs> um, it not only made me acknowledge trauma in my gut, it was a solid mass in my gut. And this is when I moved back to Louisiana. Um, my friend gave me a, edible, a little chocolate and um, it, my whole body went cold and I felt the mass in my gut. And I was like, there's something there. That's probably where I'm holding all my trauma. And I wasn't aware of it. And then after that, when the second wave hit, it was just like universal love. Like I felt warm. I just felt like, like I was back in the womb. And mentally, conceptually, in my mind, all I could think of was concentric circles. That's all that was popping up in my mind was concentric circles. And, you know, this conversation has come full circle. We've talked about taking off masks, that type of deal. So, like, it's kind of like what those Russian dolls, you know what I'm saying, where you're peeling off the layers. And then Homeboy was just talking about the chairs and all that stuff. So it's like you really have to go through all these layers to really get to that awareness space, which I felt like I felt before when I was in that, you know, metaphysical womb. You have so, it's, it, it makes you aware that you have a lot, so much to peel off that you weren't even aware of. You know what I'm saying? Cause you're used to living it. This is what I've been living in. So how would I know about it? You know what I'm saying? So I just, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you didn't oh, no, go for it. I always say No, I like, just wanted to say okay. you're like, um, go ahead. Were you finished? <laughs> I didn't want to cut you off. I just have one more thing. It's just almost like always um, um, living a life of looking left when you didn't know right existed. You know what I'm saying? And that's kind of like where I'm at right now. But go ahead. Well, okay. Thank you. I'm sorry about that. Um, I just wanted to add something. I'm not as a professional, but from experience. It's like um, like when you told your story, it feels like you're... Um, your experience went to the mind, which is your brain. I'm sorry, your brain, which is not really something to look at much. 
but then you went to your mind and then your thoughts and then that comes into your subconscious and unconscious and that brings you into awareness so basically you're aware of what is literally going on it's like okay this is this is happening and then you and you don't know where to go because you have a choice in front of you and you literally have no idea what's going on do i go right do i go left do i go straight do i go down do i go up and that is mm-hmm. a subconscious and an unconscious mind and from my experience personally i don't want to speak for everyone that's my experience like i usually go with my subconscious mind because they're more comfortable with the experience of what is happening and what's going to make me comfortable and happy. But if you go to your conscious self, then that's not going to be comfortable. You got to have to like deal with everything that's going to happen <laughs> with, uh, with that experience. And you, you have to work for it and you have to deal with it. And you have to like think, oh my God, that is so much. And I then you got to pass movement. Um, there is no work. That's important to stress. There is no work mm-hmm. in this path. You do not have okay. to, you know, because so, you're still identified with the conscious mind that does the work. Do you see? So what do you do with the subconscious mind? You let go of them all. So there's no work to be done. There's no manipulating. Yes, maybe there's some asana. Maybe there's some pranayama. Maybe there's some meditation. So perhaps there's some preparatory work to get to a state of meditation. Sure. But at every step of the way, continually remind yourself that you are not the one practicing the asana. The asana is happening not as a tool to become spiritual, but as an expression of the spirituality that you already are. This must be stressed. There's no work involved in this path. You know. Secondly, um, with regards to ancestral memory, it must be remembered that it's in yoga, there's a layered system, like you pointed out, the matryoshka or the Russian doll. And as Ernsika, you said, there's the conscious, there's a the subconscious, but you must not privilege any one of those layers over any other layer. So you're privileging the subconscious mind over the conscious mind. That's a mistake. All the layers aren't what you really are. So we have five layers, the food body, the energy body, the etheric body, if you will, that you dream in and you experience um, samskaras in. You have your mental body, which you could call the conscious mind or the cognitive mind. You have the vijnana mayakosha, which is what you might call the subconscious mind. Wisdom body is what it's traditionally translated to. And you have the bliss body, which is that feeling of bliss, um, Corey, that I believe you felt like that warm love feeling. Mm-hmm. That's a body. And all these are the five layers of experiences you can have. Each of these, though, are objects in your awareness. Insofar as you become attached to those objects, you're missing the point of the practice, which is to be more interested in the awareness that surrounds it. That's to um, Ansika's point about the work. I just had to debate you there, Ansika. I'm sorry. Had to pause. Yes. Another um, miss. <laughs> what's that, Corey? Another miss, or we always say you always set me up for disappointment. And I was like, I never, I can't win. It's all right. There's there's always someone that knows better than you, of course, and you yeah. gotta like deal with that. Yeah. There's nothing to know. That's important. That's another thing. There's nothing to know because knowledge is an object of awareness. Do you see? So you must surrender all concepts and ideas. So there's no one that knows anything of value. Yeah, no, of course. I I know that like people don't know much because I grew up with a dad that's like, I know everything. 
but I, I grew up like, and I think like nobody knows everything. Like as a term, I'm just like, okay, if you're more knowledgeable in that area, then I'll, I'm willing to listen to you. Because uh, you guys are amazing. Holy, holy crap. I'm not going to curse, but holy crap. Right <laughs> back at you, Sika. It's important <laughs> that we be uncompromising in this philosophy. There is no curse words. Only yeah. words perceived to be curse <laughs> There's a nice. <laughs> So, in terms of your ancestral memory, because you're right, um, we deal with some scars that are beyond just this incarnation. It deals with some scars that have every incarnation behind it. And that's why an embodied practice is essential in this path. Um, then I guess just the last question off of that and branch off that because I can't remember what my other one. Um, is there a way to get in tune with your subscars and what they actually are? And I remember like um, past sessions, you mentioned... Um, a soul contract, which I did have done for myself before. And I don't know if you know much about that. I think it's based off of Judaism maybe, or, um, but um, it basically, that's what the overall theme of um, what I'm saying with, with the soul contract is very similar to sub or sub on what you're here to learn or um, work through. And for mine, I think it was self-worth. That was, it was like a really, it's like a, a 12 page thing, but uh, the overall theme of it seemed like self-worth and all that um is there a way to get in tune with your subscars to see what it is that you necessarily need to be i guess aware of or know what they are yes precisely precisely good question um the soul contract languaging comes it's like kind of a modern trend that draws i believe from the third century text known as the sefer yetzera which talks a little bit about metatron and metatron's cube and the sacred geometry and the idea of a divine spark taking an incarnation for a certain expression um mm -hmm. what in yogic philosophy we might call a dharma which is your divine task or the samskaras that you've come to in more traditional terms, work out. You know, so what have you chosen to express or be aware of in this life? Now, the Buddhist answer, the Tibetan or Vajrayana Buddhist answer is you chose a certain set of samskaras to work out in this life um, by choosing certain parents, choosing a certain body, deciding at what time you will develop an illness, what uh, good fortune will come your way, what bad fortune will come away. So the Vajrayana Buddhist, Tantric Buddhist believe you have predetermined your entire life as a means to experience your samskaras. In that sense, Corey, there's nothing for you to do, but enjoy the ride. Because <laughs> everything that happens to you, you chose for precisely a reason. So you chose to be in this body because you knew that somehow it would consequently lead you to this practice. And that's what you wanted. So you yeah. choreographed, because Roxanne is in the room. I talk about dance a little. You choreographed <laughs> precisely every, and, and down to the second, down to every single second of your life, the Vajrayana Buddhists believe you choreographed it all. In Patanjali Yoga Sutra, you will read in Sa Sadhana Pada, the second chapter, or second foot in the, uh, the song, that you chose a human birth with all seven chakras, uh, six chakras for the yogis active um, because you desired in this life to pursue spiritual awakening. In that sense, um, there is nothing to do except the thing that you're doing now, which will unfold into the next thing, which will, you know, so it's a domino <laughs> effect. Um, and you kind of see this. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Your rejoinder. Um, that you see, it's funny because um, it's, it, you see the path 
it doesn't make sense until you look down the path. You know what I'm saying? You're forging the path along the way, you know, in the present as we're moving forward. Um, but I guess it makes all sense when you look back, you know, yes. uh, that's Steve all the Jones. points that led you up to where you are now. Yes, yes, yes. Steve Jobs in his uh, Stanford commencement speech said, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Yes, yes, true. Mm-hmm. Good. But Corey, I will give you a more satisfying answer, which is the Raja Yoga answer, which is yes, you can absolutely become aware of your samskaras. In fact, the goal of Raja Yoga is to become aware of a samskara before it can flower into a thought even. The idea is that at the seed of every thought is a samskara. You know, so your samskaras produce thoughts. I point you to Benjamin Libet, Lippet, mm-hmm. I believe. His research is really great. He's a neuroscientist. Definitely worth the Google, but Benjamin Lippert or Libet, I forget, did some research showing decision-making and how the brain fires way before you're even conscious of making a decision. So we had people like push buttons and they push a button when they know what button they're going to push and then they push the actual button. But it turns out that these neuroscientists were able to predict what buttons they would push even before they knew what they would push because their brain registers that activity. The idea is that there's something subtler than thought that gives rise to thought that gives rise to action Mm. and action gives rise to habit. So the idea in Patanjali Yoga Sutra is that your samskaras are determinative. They're determinative with regards to your whole life. They're all a result of this uh, software known as the samskaras. You can in your practice of Ashtanga yoga, become aware of samskaras and ultimately control them. The technique, Corey, is known as samadhi. Um, That's the technique. And the technique requires Ashtanga yoga, which is your yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, um, dharana, dhyana, and finally, you get to samadhi. So moral conduct interpersonal cleansing conduct, asana practices we talked about, pranayama practice, and then you will achieve pratyahara, which is a drawing inward, the ability to reorient your perceptual field to an interior world. Then you can do what we call samyama, which is dharana, take an object, focus on it. That, if you can do that for 12 seconds, uh, breaking concentration, it turns into a dhyana, a meditative state. In that state, Corey, all your samskaras will become available to you. You'll be aware of every single tendency you have, and then you can choose which one to express, which one to repress. Secondly, Corey, there are tantric ceremonies. I don't think they happen anymore, but there definitely have been documented instances of tantric ceremonies meant to ultimately open all samskaras at once. It involves visualizing wombs and moving your energy through every womb simultaneously that you would pass in the future and end it, express it. So I just want you to know that there is a ritual possibility for you, Corey. I'm not able to do that ritual for you. And maybe somewhere in Kashmir, they might still be doing it, but I doubt it. <laughs> well, it looks like I'm going to be taking a flight over, see what's going on. Yes. Um, and just one quick question and I'm done for... Um, you, you were talking about the I, I am this, I am that, um, you know, this, that manifesting is really popular right now. Um, do you, um, so does that, does that knock that out with manifesting? Cause manifesting is like, Oh, I am a, you know, successful, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, trying to bring things into your life. How do you feel? Or is that like, is manifesting a thing? You know what I'm saying? Is it real? Is it? 
Yes, great, Corey. Mikey asked something similar too, which is, is self-help spirituality rajasic? And yes, entirely. So manifestation is uh, rajasic spirituality. And I don't know if you were here, Corey, for that part of class where we talked about the sadvic, rajasic, and tamasic spirituality. Mm -mm, No, I missed out. Yeah, well, basically, we were saying that there are three kinds of practitioners. The practitioner interested in getting free, sattvic practitioner whose life is oriented around becoming free of their samskaras. These people renounce um, sex. They renounce the world. They renounce... Basically, there's nothing left to manifest because they know every experience they can have through their ego and senses will not fulfill them. So they don't even bother chasing anything. So they don't manifest, you know. That's Mm -hmm. a certain grade, a sattvic um, spiritual practitioner. Most of us are in the rajasic phase where we desire spirituality to enhance our enjoyments in life. In that sense, yes, for sure, manifest. Two schools of thought. The Buddhists say, waste of time, don't do it. It's a trap. Everything you manifest will decay and it will create a thirst that you can never quench. So don't do it. The non-dualists say, don't do it because everything you manifest is an illusion anyway. Stop buying into the reality of your perceptual field. (laughs) The tantrikas say, no, 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 definitely manifest. After all, this whole world is your manifestation. You have always been Shiva and you dreamt this world into existence. Go ahead and lucid dream. Manifest some stuff, do it. If only to see that it won't satisfy you. So Tantra does give you a place for sensual enjoyment, and it even gives you a spiritual technology, as you pointed out, Corey, a technology that is becoming increasingly available to people today for manifestation, like the law of attraction or et cetera, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that is so cool. Like, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be interrupting a little bit, but it's like, one is like other philosophies, like Buddhists and the other one where they talk about how don't even try. But the other one says, no, you should try. So you can realize it's like, I didn't just tell you, you're not going to like it. You yourself are going to figure out you're not going to like it. Yes. We call it divine dispassion in Buddhism. It's that divine feeling of, ah, Welsh marriage, world weariness. Sometimes people have to eat the whole damn peanut butter jar before they realize no peanut butter will satisfy them. Be a king, conquer kingdoms, and then give it all up. I want that student, not the one who has intellectually decided they don't want the world, but secretly they do. You know, that student will leave me like three months. When it starts to get interesting, they'll leave, you know? (laughs) Well, thank you so much for answering the string of questions. Yes, very good, Corey. Very good questions. I hope I was able to help in some small way. Always, always. Thank you. Yes. And so sorry, Laura, you got cut off after you said um, about the samskara, the cigarettes, and then we lost you when we went on. <laughs> I know. As soon as I finally talked, I was like, of course, that's how it's going to work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just finishing on that note earlier, I was just kind of saying, you know, like I knew a long time ago uh, when I was caught up in it, even when it wasn't serving me anymore, even though I wanted to move away from it, um, you know, somewhere deep down, it was still serving the purpose. And so now, you know, that I've quit looking back, you know, being around friends who still partake in that, I'm just like, it just doesn't like, you know, it it just creeps up in certain times that I'm just like, wow, you know, you just kind of have these self-realizations of where you've, you know, come from where you're going, so to speak. But, um, I also had a question, uh, moving forward, what you said, um, a minute ago about you can eat all the peanut butter, get to the bottom of the jar before you realize, you know, it's never going to satisfy you. 
And I heard someone talk on this, um, basically saying, you know, that's kind of part of the human experience and people tend to get to, oh, I want to be up there, up there, up there and forget to you at the same time have to ground yourself and realize we're human for a reason. We're here to experience human things. And I just, I guess I just wanted a little bit more on that and your thoughts on that, because, you know, I kind of, it's silly things, materialistic things go back. Like, should I get my nails done? Or is that just too worldly? But then it's kind of like, you're here on earth to experience being a human. So get your nails done, you know? Oh, my heart sings at your revelation, Laura. (laughs) Thank you. I bow to the wisdom in that statement because I think you captured what is the most rarefied and sophisticated Indian philosophy. And uh, I must ask forgiveness from Claire because all I do is talk Tantra. She's heard it too many times. (laughs) But the idea is that there is in the 10th century, 9th and 10th century, a cast of philosophers, Abhinava Gupta, Utpala Deva, um, Kasema Raja, a group of philosophers that start to formulate a movement that started maybe around fifth, hard to say, but fifth century AD, maybe. It's an aesthetic philosophical movement known as Tantra. And some schools of this Tantra, especially Kashmiri Shaivism, suggest this. This world emanated not as a mistake, as some of the non-dualists would say. The Buddhists don't even ask you to figure out how this world came into being. They just say, get out. (laughs) Yeah. So worldliness. But in Kashmiri Shaivism or Tantra, it says, some, not all Tantra, some Tantra says, you as God, as Shiva, the pure conscious being, desire to experience yourself in form. In other words, as an act of self-love and self-exploration, you manifested a plurality of form. It was made entirely of yourself. So that nothing exists except you. Yet, in order to really enjoy the movie, you had to get into the plot. So when you're really watching a movie, you can, for a moment, think that you are Jamie Lee Curtis running away from this serial killer. (laughs) Now, there is a bit of tragedy in that, right? Nobody wants to run away from the serial killer. I play in a band now called Final Girl, so I'm like thinking about that a lot. But uh, (laughs) nobody really wants to be the final girl. Like, you don't want to be running away from the serial serial killer. Um, But that's how you enjoy the movie. You know, so right. Kashmiri Shaivism says one way to enjoy the movie or, or the, you don't enjoy the movie if you really think you're Jamie Lee Curtis. If you're actually Jamie Lee Curtis, you're too close to the action. <laughs> Abby's like, I want to okay. be Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> so I was talking about this with my friend today. Like when you're in it, you hate it. But like if you were only the person like watching the movie and you could be that person watching the movie, you'd be so much more happy. And it, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Abhinava Gupta, as Claire and I were talking about earlier, um, I love our Instagram exchanges. Abhinava Gupta is more known in Sanskrit literature circles as uh, a aesthetic philosopher than a spiritual philosopher, meaning he's more, he's more known for his art theories. And he has this thing that he says, what makes art art is not an emotion, but the ability to step aside from the emotion and objectively work with it. So art is the space around an emotion. So similarly, when you are Jamie Lee Curtis, life sucks. I mean, you're running away from a serial killer. Now the Buddhists say, realize this, leave the damn cinema. The (laughs) non-dualists say, realize it's all special effects, stop watching the movie. Kashmiri Shaivites say, no, realize it's a movie and now you can enjoy it. (laughs) So you're right. 
Laura realizes that, and the beauty of this is that you as Shiva manifested this world with deep intention. It wasn't random. It didn't just like happen. Everything that happened happened with intention so you could explore yourself. What does this mean? It actually means that Hitler had to happen. You know, it means that Pol Pot had to happen. That's because you cannot deny any aspect of yourself. And after all, aren't you infinite? So within infinite, some pretty dark possibilities exist. You know, that's just a, a consequence of infinite. We must accept that in this philosophy. But in that infinite, there is also Laura getting her nails done. <laughs> now, what's beautiful about this, Laura, is that, and as I often stress this, of the infinite forms that could have been and that are, Laura is here. That means the divine chose to be this form with these samskaras, with this ancestral history, with this like visage, where, oh, I could cry looking at you, Laura, because the beauty of the Laura form is so sacred. It was so intentional. And it only took in this life cycle, 13.7 billion years of manufacturing to get this. Um, Kashmiri Shaivism says, there's a mistake. You mistake yourself to be just Laura and mm -hmm. that hurts and that causes suffering. The Indian schools of philosophy like non-duality and Buddhism say to solve this mistake, cease to be Laura. Give up the world. Kashmiri Shaivam says, what a waste. Don't cease to be Laura. Don't give up the world. Be in the world the way you truly meant to be in this world, which is with your third eye or Shiva's eye open and you can be all bodies. So ultimately, Laura, you can be sitting here getting your nails done and like, you'll be looking around the room and you are the person giving you the nail job. You are the room in which everyone is sitting. You are sitting here right now. We're looking into each other's eyes, but I don't know which one is my pair of eyes. Like that feeling is what I think we're here for. The most mature, immersive, pervasive spirituality. Wow. Thank you for that. That was really awesome. Yeah. That's what a friend told me a long time ago that, you know, part of what sparked going deeper into this was we were standing at a gas station one day and I was frustrated with somebody in the line. And she was just telling me, she was like, you're creating the reality around, you know, the lady in front of you, making you mad. <laughs> you're, you know, you're manifesting everything in front of you right now. You're just, we're all just fractals of each other, you know? And so I guess, uh, my next question would be is, uh, so I found you from TikTok. I've been hiding in the shadows watching your videos for a while. And um, and I have watched a lot of spirituality videos on TikTok. And I've been learning for years. And at first, it felt kind of like, you know, really good to connect with other people who were like-minded. Because, you know, I live in a place where this isn't like the norm to talk about. And um, But now it's almost like it's like people bickering with what's right and what's wrong within the spiritual community. And it's kind of like, you know, you want to reach out for support and help, but then you're like, what, when is it too much? What's too much information and just take away, like, when do I just like lean on my own understanding of what I need to do? And I guess I was just wondering where you sit on like things like, um, um, like spirit guides and, um, all that kind of stuff that's talked about a lot. You know, there's a lot of misinformation and too much information and you just don't, <laughs> you shouldn't trust everything on the internet to begin with. But, you know, uh, I'm just kind of wondering like what's real and what's not at this point. It's almost like overload, you know? 
So yes, yes. I, anyway, I was just kind of wondering like um, where you stand on that and what you think about all of that. Yes, yes. I mean, unfortunately, this is going to disappoint you, but I'm a non-dualist. And that okay. is, we take everything that is an object of awareness to be as real as Harry Potter. Valuable okay. to talk about, fun to talk about, interesting, but lacking an intrinsic, objective, absolute reality. Okay. Only one thing is real, and that is Shiva or Brahman or consciousness or the Tao. Only the Tao is real. The Tao or Brahman or Shiva, we see as a conscious monad, meaning a conscious principle that exudes this universe. Now, the big debate is why does this universe exist? We can accept all possibilities in this universe because of this view. So non-duality is one of the most inclusive views because it says, yeah, it is an infinite universe. Of course there are aliens. Of course there are spirit guides. Of course there are various realms. And you know what? It makes no sense, and I'm going to give you kind of a Buddhist flavor here, but it makes no sense to talk about things you don't have personal experiences with. So that's why it's helpful to have a practice. And then you will have experiences that correlate with some of these philosophies. Beware of wishful thinking. Beware of escapism. There are many of us who veil our, our worldliness in spiritual terms. You know, there are many of us who engage in these fantasies of other realms and astral projection and lucid dreaming and spirit guys as a kind of misguided way to not have to deal with our shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. So beware the aesthetic around spirituality. After all, they, the, beware the brood of vipers. They say, Lord, Lord, yet they know me not. <laughs> they stand outside every temple. Now, in that though, in all this confusing mess, the important thing is to not get sucked up into um, ideas without the institutions and context in which they exist. So it becomes disequilibrating or disorienting when you start to dip into many schools um, partially. So you know a little bit about Tibetan Buddhism or a little bit about this and a little bit about that, but you're lacking the coherent structure that makes that one piece of information valuable. And then it's like, what do I do with all of this? You know? Yeah. System has an internal sense of logic. Only when mastered completely does that internal system start to corroborate with every other system. Short of that mastery, it can be very confusing to mix metaphors. You know? Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. So that's one thing. The Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. The one advice that none of his followers followed, right? They all followed him and he ate poison food and died essentially a suicide so they could stop worshiping him. <laughs> Thank you for coming by, Ansika. We really appreciated all of your insights and your comments. Thank you. We'll be here next Monday as well. Yeah. So it is important, Laura, to pick and choose from different things. But your practice must always be ahead of your theory, if that makes sense. So okay. theory should come after the experience and help articulate and contextualize that experience. So Mikey's a master of this. Mikey has had incredibly profound non-dual experiences in his journey. And this philosophical discussion is helpful to him because he can retroactively situate and orient himself with regards to that experience. I don't know if you'd like to share a little bit, Mikey, with this regard. I think it could be valuable, but not to put you on the spot or anything. 
I don't think I can possibly say it better than how you just said it, Nish. This, uh, the retro, you know, having an experience. I think that that's probably, um, that might be, I, I'm aware of that TikTok um, soup that you're talking about. And I think one, maybe, the, you know, there's also sort of this swelling of psychedelic experiences that people are, tr- are trying to integrate, which is, might be feeding and populating some of this. And it probably, what you just said, Nish, might apply similarly you know, to that as well as people kind of trying to sort out the terrain and then only later when they've had sort of real, real experiences on the cushion or elsewhere, um, does this entire soup start to fit into kind of a category? You can almost see it spatially like a, it fits under one beach ball or something, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, Good. Now, no, no, take it away, Nish. That was beautiful. No, no. Like, take it away, Mikey, because Mikey impresses me so much with his depth. Mikey has had some very deep experiences, and I love talking to Mikey because all the philosophies just glue so nicely. <laughs> but the point here is that these concepts are good if they inspire you to practice. And so keep imbibing only insofar as it turns you on to practice. Like you just can't wait to get on your mat or you just can't wait to. But once you choose a practice, you must stick to it. Um with faith because when a practice starts working that's when you're going to want to abandon it you know okay (laughs) there will be resistance like your ego will sense its own imminent demise and then it'll be like okay i'm done with the asana pranayama now i want to try i don't know um merkaba uh trance i don't know there's just so many options that you can start to spread yourself so thin over many different spiritual disciplines if someone is really serious i suggest getting like this book um, magic and the great work of self-transformation. I definitely recommend getting that um, and working out of it exclusively for four years. <laughs> so this is a great, great resource, I believe. It's by uh, Liam Thomas Christopher. It basically takes you through Jewish mysticism or Kabbalistic mysticism, and it gives you meditations. It gives you a book list. Um, It's from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. It's a secret society in in Europe around 1920, England. Um, But they have a good curriculum, a good syllabus that's been preserved quite well to this modern day. So if you're a solitary practitioner, if you're on your own, you need a system, you don't really know where to go, you can do these self-learn courses. Well, thank you. I was like, this is, I feel like I've you know, done so much research alone on my own and sorry to everyone who's probably been here and listened to all this before. Um, but actually watching you, this is such a fresh new perspective on things and like something that struck me earlier. Um, something that's so common that I see all the time is you've got to work on yourself and you've got to do shadow work and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And I'm sitting here like, dang, that's a lot. Like, um, and then to hear you say, there's no work to be done, you know, you're who you're supposed to be. That was just so refreshing to hear, like in my soul, hearing that I am complete and like, I'm not, you know, watching those, it almost makes you feel like you're like broken almost like I've got to put all my puzzle pieces back together. And just to hear like, you no, know, you're here and you're, you know, you are as you should be. Yes. So, but thank you for that. Thank you for saying that, Laura. The Catholic guilt dies hard. Mm. It will take a million oh, for no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, up until, uh, you know, I think I finally left. I was originally uh, raised a non-denominational Christian, and I left the church as 
a young teenager because I was like, I don't know about any of this, you know, and that stuff to this day, um, I'll be 28 this year. And that stuff is still hard to pound out of my head, certain aspects of the church, you know, that's how deeply ingrained some of those things are put in. So it's just nice to, uh, you know, get on here tonight and have other like-minded people. <laughs> yes, yes. You are so welcome here anytime, Laura. And, you know, Roxanne and Mikey and Claire are like veterans, just such sages. And they're <laughs> always here for you. You know, Travis is a physicist with such a profound understanding and he's always ready to, you know, it's just, oh, and then Abby's so just insightful and experiential. And it's just so nice to have people here who really got your back, you know, spiritually and emotionally, everything. Yes. Well, thank you. I'm definitely going to be coming back. (laughs) I'll be here on Monday night, 7 p.m. always. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's all I have. I just, you know, I just wanted to say my piece. (laughs) Yes, Claire, my dear. Sorry. (laughs) Kept you waiting. Oh, don't apologize. Time isn't real. (laughs) So, but, uh, (laughs) just, (laughs) first of all, um, I only wanted to clarify my original point and I waited too long and no one who would be relevant to is still here. <laughs> the, the child experiment is more of a thought experiment where you think of yourself as a child and everyone else is also a child and then you realize that they're your children and everything is your child and like we're all children and we're also all children, you know? Anyways, that's all. <sighs> See, that was relevant. What are you talking was, about? Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Travis. There's no world in which Claire speaks or plays guitar that isn't relevant to somebody. Um, no, that's not true. But I also wanted to say on uh, Laura's question or point that she just made about TikTok, and you guys spend too much time on TikTok. I'm sure of it. But um, that there is like in the Yoga Sutra, and I'm going to butcher this, so please forgive me. The the ways of discerning whether something not is true and if it can be verified by a teacher, verified scripturally, or verified in your own experience. So there are like yogic ways to figure out if something is legitimate. Yes, there are four pratyaksha. The sutra there are three: pratyaksha, sad agama, sad guru, sad tarka. So these are the four things. Pratyaksha means direct observation. This is the best. Um, this is the most reliable. If it's true in your immediate experience, like that's, that's the best thing you got, right? Here's the problem though. If you just had direct experience, you can get confused because often what you interact with is not the experience, but your retroactive interpretation of the experience. You know, so you're always kind of one degree removed from the experience by what you thought happened. So direct observation is good, but not enough. The next one is Sadhguru, which is a true teacher. You need a true teacher to help you make sense of what happened to you, you know. The teacher is a living embodiment of scripture. So you should only accept teachers who are peaceful, have their life together, and really look like they're living the the talk, walking the talk, you know. Now, a teacher is your um, personal relationship to the scripture in the sense that nothing a teacher can say must contradict, can, can contradict scripture, you know. So that's the third thing, which is sad agama, meaning true scripture. Uh, in India, ancient philosophy, this meant scripture all around India. So 
what were the debates happening and what were the different commentaries and could you ground your teaching in something else? So meaning, could you place your teaching in the wider context of peer-reviewed scripture? Because remember, we don't have a Bible. You know, there's no like book. Is instead various um, dis, uh, various texts by sages and then other sages exegetically commenting on it, debating it. So it's a peer-reviewed system. That's the third one, Sadagaman. The final one I would argue is the most important. That's Satarka, meaning true... Um, discrimination or uh, true discernment, which is your own reasoning powers. So when the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself, he was probably in the Sanskrit referencing this satarka, which is know for yourself, don't put yourself or pigeonhole yourself into any one religion, you know, um, but use your reason to kind of work through things. So the general idea is if it checks out and if and only if it checks out with all four systems, is it true knowledge? Pramana, to use the yogic term. Thank you, Claire. That was really good. That's Sutra 7, I believe. Yes, thank you. Yes. Sadhana Pada, Sutra 7. Six or seven if you're interested. Seven. I think Sutra 7. How do I go about finding all these scripts? Yeah, I'll give you some. So Claire just cited the Yoga Sutra. I highly recommended uh, Raja Yoga by Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda. His translation of the Yoga Sutra is my favorite. If you read Satchit Ananda, uh, Satchit Ananda's Yoga Sutra, after Vivekananda, you'll find it so funny because Satchit Ananda basically rewrote Vivekananda's Yoga Sutra. All the examples are the same. Like, it's just so cute. It makes me feel better because sometimes I feel like, so like, oh man, I'm just rehashing everything. And then I read Sachin Ananda's Yoga Sutra and I feel okay. It's okay. It's all been said. <laughs> so that's a good one. Um, you might want to check out. Yeah, repetition. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, what else? You might, Yoga Sutra is great. If you want primary sources, um, Laura, there's some really good ones like the Vignana Bhairava Tantra is one of my favorite primary sources. It's got a nice translation by Lauren Roche. PhD. The problem is a lot of translations can be very scholarly and like not that helpful, can be kind of boring. But this one I like because it's so breezy and readable. He calls it the Radiant Sutra. That's his, yeah, that's a good one, Radiant Sutra. Um, Christopher Wallace, I always recommend his work because he's he's a scholar that appeals to the everyday reader. He talks to you as a spiritual practitioner to another spiritual practitioner. If you get his book, Tantra Illuminated, he translates in that book a lot of primary sources for you and breaks it down. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah, there's a great translation of the Shiva Samhita by Mallinson and the Shiva Svarodaya. Oh man, I I don't remember who translated it. I have the... um, It's somewhere there, but... These are all great primary sources. But for you, Laura, I don't think it's necessary to go right to the primary sources yet. You know, like if you're getting started to orient yourself, I definitely recommend George Feuerstein's The Deeper Dimensions of Yoga. This will give you kind of a nice lay of the land and then you can decide which you want to get into because you might not resonate with Kula Arnarva Tantra. You might not resonate with Yoga Sutra. In that sense, it would be a waste to study the very difficult primary source. 
Right. Better that you get the lay of the land and then you go, okay, I want to know actually what the Buddha said. The thing about Buddhism, it's the one thing that is most, uh, nobody reads the Buddha. No one one looks at the primary sources for the Buddha. So I think if you're interested in Buddhism, it can be very helpful to check out the Dhamma Chakka, the Lotus Sutra, all that stuff. But until you're interested, why go to the primary sources? Just take your time with the secondary sources. Great commentators like George Furstein, like, um, uh, you know, um, Christopher Wallace. These are great secondhand commentators. I highly recommend Swami Nikilananda's work. Um, You will, this Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, actually it's one book, Bhakti and Karma Yoga. Are some of these that you're, I'm sorry, are some of these listing, didn't you make a, a video where you listed? Okay, so should I just reference back to that video? That's a good video. Yes, definitely. Of course, okay. now I'm speaking to you more directly. I'm kind of throwing yes. in stuff that I think you might like based on what I'm kind of piecing together from what you've spoken about. Thank you. So, Okay, well, I would awesome. I am definitely interested in looking into all of that. <laughs> Um, oh, I had a question and it left me. I guess it'll come back if it's important. <laughs> we'll go to Abby and then, of course, we'll come back to you, Laura. But most importantly, Laura, don't forget to get on the mat. That's the most important thing. The reading's got to stop at some point. So work with one or two books <laughs> at most. You oh, know? yeah. You, you just called me out right there because yeah, that is the I, problem. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest for you, Laura, work with one book at a time. Don't get any other books until you're done with that book. Read it thrice. You know? Thank you. Yes. Hi. Yes, Abby. Um, okay, so I, would, I had a question. Um, so um, I was wondering about like engaging in deeper and non-dualist thinking and being able to communicate non-dually because I um, like of like New England, like intellectual people who are like very, I don't know how to explain this. Very, it's very, everything is very dualistic. There's a lot of dichotomy. It's very Western. It's really a science religion dichotomy, like dichotomy. So that's where I've learned to think, and I do find that like the way I communicate is is um, can be very dualistic, and um, yeah. And I don't feel like that helps me when it comes to spiritual practice. And um, although I've had some some profound experiences, I've been meditating as a practice. I've done some reading. I don't feel as though I know what direction to go in. Um, so I was just curious what you have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also the idea of it not being a self-help thing, because that's another very Western idea that I've had beaten into me. Um, so I'm just, yeah. Yes, yes. Really good, Avi. Really good. Because Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda, who is the ambassador of non-duality to the West, you know, he came first to Chicago. Well, I think he came to Boston. Well, no, I can't remember. But he landed, I think, in Boston and then went to Chicago. But in New England back then, and remember, there were some great American sages like Whitman and uh, Emerson and Thoreau who were transcendentalists. So they were like already challenging New England ideas of dualism. Brahman, you know, the poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson, great. But then the Civil War comes around and then America contracts into this heavy atheistic dualism. So when Vivekananda comes, he spends a lot of his time debating atheists. You know, and a beautiful thing is that they often expected to find an, an illiterate 
sentimental religious person. But instead, they found a philosophically rigorous, intellectually tight, you know, so that's one thing. It was helpful for non-duality in the West. Kant, I would point you to Kantian antimonies. So Kant is a rationalist, a powerful mind. And even he showed in this paper, it's called the antinomies, that reason is self-defeating. So reason as an orientation towards life cannot answer all the questions. So one way to be in a non-dualist space is to kill the owner of the pitchfork company with the pitchforks that the company produces, if that makes sense. So break the mind through the mind. Use like Kantian antimonies and in Zen, it's called the Zen Koan. But basically it's a practice of entertaining paradoxical thoughts and trying to reconcile the paradox that can help you comfortably exist in a non-dual paradoxical space. Now, remember Aristotle kind of wrecked the Western mind because he's got a principle of exclusion, right? The law of exclusion. I think is either A or it's not A. Aristotle was like, that's a law. And we're all just like, okay, but no, challenge that. Be like, can it be A and not A at the same time? So can spirituality be both self-help and not self-help at the same time? You know, so you uh. live, yeah, live in these paradoxes. Can you be both the self and not yourself? Like that's the kind of thinking non-duality asks you to engage in. You know, so yeah. beware of any black or white statements. Um, okay. But we do make many, like you are not the mind, you are not the body. You are all minds and all bodies. Paradoxical. Uh, yeah. yeah. Very paradoxical. Live in paradox. That's the first thing. The first thing I'll suggest for you is be comfortable, com- comfort, comfortable with paradox. <laughs> I'm just going to write that. The second one is seek silence often. Now, the reason is language is inherently dualistic. So especially with the very heady intellectual circles of New England, there's a lot of talking, right? Mm-hmm. And beware. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you, but see, it's the New England in me. Everyone tries to, um, it's, it can be um, convoluted, basically. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so definitely avoid that um, by being silent more. So a lot of solitude, a lot of silence can help you kind of imbibe that non-dual pure awareness quality. You know, the third thing, and this is this is kind of an interesting thing. The third thing is, um, do you write poetry? Well, um, oh yeah, my, my dad's a poet. He's a haiku poet. That's so weird that you ask. Yes, I, I, I don't know. I'm getting that intuition about you, and I think you should pursue that. You know, okay. That's that's your path. Do that. Do the haiku. Do the minimal poetry. Explore the space between the lines of the poem, you know? Okay. Use less words in your poem. You have a challenge, five words, that's your poem. You know, like, play with that. Play with that. Wow, very impressed. (laughs) Yes, good, good. Good, Abby. You're so, ah, you're just so beautiful. I'm so proud of you. you. I'm so grateful to be, like, you know, in your presence. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful to be in your presence. I'm having a lot of paradoxical thoughts and that's why I know that I'm learning because I get really stressed when I find a good new teacher or even though you're not a teacher. See? (laughs) I I correct myself a lot. Good, good. Well done. Well done. Thank you. See, Nish, we got you there. When you say you're not a teacher, you also at the same time have to be a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Only in the sense that you are, Travis. As well, as well, yes. 
Only in that sense am I a teacher, in that I am a mirror for that uh, version of you. <laughs> yes, yes. No, no, this is helpful for me because I, I really do teach myself a lot here. I, I learn my limits and, you know, it's really, like I said, I've conned you all to come into teaching me and I am grateful. I am grateful that you take the time to educate. As if you conned us as well. As what? You've... You, what did you say? You, you've conned us to being here? What, what, yes, what? I conned you to come here and teach me on your time for free. And we're conning you right now by continuing this conversation too. <laughs> we are God's great schizophrenia. I love it. I love paradoxes. They're great. They're, they're amazing to engage in. It's just so, it's a circle. It's a, it's a roller coaster pretty much. They're from. Spoken like a true physicist. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, we have such a deep love for you physicists. Such a deep love. You know, have you seen the picture of Einstein and Tagore? No. You have to check it out. Just Google in Google Images. It's my one today, I think my favorite picture in the world. Einstein and Tagore. Google it. Tagore is our great poet, Rabindranath Tagore. He's the poet laureate. He's the first non-European to win a Nobel Prize in literature. Um, and he's our Indian Nobel laureate poet, you know, and he is such a voice for the Indian spirit. His major work is Gitanjali. And uh, he was hanging out with Einstein all the time. Like he came over New England, you know, him what and Einstein. What an interesting energy in this picture. Yeah, do you see that? It's such a cool yeah. photo. They're just, they're both sages. The sage of the East meets the sage of the West. Right. right. And uh, their conversations are really worth, they're like these, you know, Rabindranath asks Einstein, in human in human, there are certain laws that govern my inner world. Are there also laws in physics that are overarching? You know, they have these conversations right. and it's so great. Yeah. And the cool thing there is to then stitch them together and be like, oh, it's all the same law. Cool. Yes. <laughs> it's the same language. The Nataraja outside of CERN. That's the clue. The what? The outside the Hadron Collider in Switzerland, you know, the CERN laboratory, C-E-R-N, there's yeah. a big dancing Shiva outside. Is there really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Dancing Shiva. Because it's, like, it's a Hadron Collider, right? Or the idea of the Damaru as a pulsar. I mean, the doctrine of vibration, Spanda theory, you know, it's like the string theorist, they, they do use a lot of that imagery. Right. Yes. I see, I see the connection you're making. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Yes, Corey, what is happening, my brother? All right. So um, what was I had the question on the tip of my tongue? Oh, okay. So I'm definitely um, drawn to non-duality thinking. However, Corey feels a need to participate in my community, Black community, and everything that's going on right now. Um, and, you know, I'm still wrapping my head around the concept of Shiva and everything. And that you know we're all a creation and, and incarnation of that um, that that energy. Um, so do you? So am I to just let that let everything play out as it is, or do I participate? Or you know what I'm saying? There's that conflict. Yes, great question, um, Corey. I'll give you a story. One day, Shankaracharya was touched by a butcher. Ramakrishna gives it in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. He's offended because of the caste system. Shankaracharya is a Brahmin, the butcher is a Shudra, like, or an untouchable. I was touched by a person of lowly caste. <laughs> it's a St. Francis story, actually, because the butcher says to him, Shankaracharya, aren't you a non-dualist? I didn't touch you, you didn't touch me. 
we can never touch each other. <laughs> you have two things. So um, the answer, Corey, is that here's the paradox for you. You can never do anything and neither should you. You are completely uninvolved with the way things are shaking out. Yet, Corey will work tirelessly to play Corey's part. Mm. So in the Bhagavad Gita, verse 47, book two. Chap- what do you call it? Chapter two, book two, part two. I don't know. When you break up a song into parts, because it's a song, right? The Bhagavad Gita. I don't know how to translate it in English. Like chapter, chapter two, um, verse 47. Mm-hmm. It sings. Uh, do not be. Uh, let me trans. Do what you do. What you do. But don't be attached to the outcome. Your right is to your work only, not to its fruits. Leave the fruits to me, but also don't slack off. <laughs> that's, my, that's my silly interpretation of that line. But it's, it translates basically as that. It's like, don't slack off, do your stuff, but don't do it. Meaning, don't do it with any intention in mind. Don't do it to achieve anything. Um, just do it based on your own calling. So what you feel needs to be done, do. But most importantly, Corey, only act from the authentic needs of the moment and not, yes, and Kaz is saying a beautiful thing, Wu Wei, which in Taoism is a beautiful concept, Wu Wei, effortless effort, or um, in the Taoist Qigong, uh, actionless action. The idea is that an action is happening. Here's the key difference. Usually when we act, we impose, or to use the, the term correctly, superimpose onto reality some thought construct of what we think that situation needs. So we think we know what's right for a situation. We think we know best. After all, we can't zoom out and see the whole picture, so we can only act on a limited picture. Correct? Mm-hmm. So no action is a perfect action. It's just the best action we can do given the data that we have. But we must acknowledge that we only have part of the data. Therefore, our action will only address part of the bigger picture. If you were able to see the bigger picture, don't you think the action might flow a little more harmoniously with the best outcome for everybody? Mm. The question then is, how can you reorient yourself to see the bigger picture? The answer is, let Corey do his thing But you step back, zoom out, and just be the aware space. Then, no longer do you act. Action just flows out of you naturally. And it's only in that state of flow, you might call it, or wu-wei, or inspired action. All of you have experienced it, and it's that moment where the book writes itself. The pages are flowing out of you. The characters seem to be speaking despite yourself. The dance is choreographing itself. The equations write themselves. um, And you aren't doing it. You're just watching like with glee. And then later, once the album is pressed and out on Spotify, you listen back and you're like, I can't believe I did that. And then you're so excited, right? Mm -hmm. Like that act, Corey, like that. So meditate deeply and then the action will just come naturally. Your community will be helped spontaneously because you can't help but act in your dharma, you know? Got it. It's beautiful. Um, I've learned a lesson of, you know, I feel like 
you know, when I'm interacting with my community or whatever, we, or just, I, it's not even just my community. It's, I feel like the condition right now is that we're just so reactionary. You know what I'm saying? We're so reactionary. And um, there was a story, I don't know where I heard it. I'm about to butcher it or somebody who said it. It's like, um, it's talking about, I, I believe a farmer and like his donkey gets stolen. I, I, it was so long ago, I don't even remember, but it's a lesson about being reactionary and mm-hmm. that like, oh, and the guy was so apathetic. He didn't care. He's like, yeah. he said something. And then like, it came back and like, it was two donkeys or something like that. And the people asked them and he was like, he still didn't care. You know what I'm saying? And I thought that was awesome. And there was something similar like this that happened in the article that I read where um, a group destroyed something like an archeological site or whatever. And everybody was really upset about it or, or something like that. Um, but when, after destruction was cleared and everything, what did they find? They found like um, a mosaic of Buddha or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. just like, let's not be so reactionary in the moment. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And it's just literally being, it just seems like things play out for a reason and to not be attached to reaction. All you can do is be a ripple. You know what I'm saying? And a ripple causes other ripples and affects those ripples and those ripples and so on and so forth. So. Yes, yes. You'll read it in Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. He does that story about the donkey. It's a Zen story. He does it in a modern way. The guy wins the lottery. His family is like, yay. And he's like, he's like, this is so good. He's like, maybe. And then, you know, he buys the car and he gets mm-hmm. into an accident. And then they're like, this is so bad. He's like, maybe. But because he had an accident, he was in the hospital. And when the landslide happened, he wasn't at home to get injured. And they're like, this is so good. And he's like, maybe. <laughs> Everything that happens. Yeah, to him, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Zen story is called Maybe So. And it's a story of saying everything that happens to you, maybe so, might be good, might be bad. You don't know because you can't see the whole picture. Now, you're beautiful, beautifully put it with the ripples because Alan Watts makes this point. Like if you zoom into any part of your body, it's chaos. I don't know if you heard that talk. I also didn't, but I, I don't know. Just, uh, there's, like a, there's a place in your body, if you zoom in, there's chaos. And you might think, oh no, it's horrible. But if you zoom out, you situate that chaos into a bigger picture of harmony. Mm. You know? Now, music is a great metaphor. You zoom in more, it's even more, it's even more order. Yes. You, you zoom in even more, and then it's past the chaos and it goes back to order. But maybe behind that, there's even more chaos. Who knows? Exactly. Exactly. And the idea is here you've got this infinite regress setup, right, Travis? You've got the yeah. order and the chaos and the order. And the more you zoom out, the idea is that the final place is complete order. And the idea is if I only played you a bit of a song, it would be kind of dissonant. You know, I need to give you the whole symphony and then you can figure out why Miles Davis played the B flat in a G Dorian. It's sorry, a D Dorian. It's a B, Miles. Why did you (laughs) play the B flat? That's what? What? Context. Exactly, exactly. Miles gets away with it because you listen to the whole piece and you listen to Kind of Blue and you're like, oh, and you might call it a brown note, but it's important for the music. And, and that's not to be too Christian science with you, but that's God's symphony, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the idea. It's like nothing is in vain. Everything is decided and it's already happened. So the idea is the word of God isn't being spoken. It's already been spoken. 
So you're watching everything retroactively. Uh, again, I will quote the Matrix, forgive me for my insolence, but um, you know when she, he sits with the Oracle, he's like, you already know every choice I'm going to make. In a sense, I've already made all those choices. So what's the point of me talking to you now? He's asking about what the role of agency is in a predetermined universe. And the Oracle gives a very beautiful answer. She says, your only role in all of this is to understand why you chose what you chose. Mm. Very Gyana. Your role is just to, to understand, to think, to philosophize. Because truly, Corey going to do what Corey going to do. That's the truth <laughs> of it. You know? That's Not, true. Nothing in the world is going to change that because... Corey already did what Corey was going to do. You know, like predeterministically speaking, everything's already been done. It's all been said and done. Now you are just in this perceptual um, experience of time going along for a ride that has already been ridden. Ramana Maharshi says famously and powerfully, nothing that cannot happen. No, that which won't happen cannot be made to happen. And that which will happen cannot be stopped from happening. Do you see? Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about free will, but and it's beautiful that oh, you can just go on the on the on the ride of the dance, you know, that we're on right now. Um, but I mean, so does that mean we don't have free will? Yeah, you don't. I mean, okay. yes and no. So here's the paradox: you have free will. Do we have soft will, please, Nish? Do we have soft will? Yeah, it is kind of a compatibilist view. Yeah, we do have. <laughs> Soft determinism, it's a good way. It's like... We don't. It's both at the same time. Exactly. That's what it is. It's both at the same time. The Buddha refused to answer this, right? Neither? Both? (laughs) Yes? No? Neither? Both? He refused to answer. But uh, Ramakrishna, you'll find in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna says, man only considers himself the doer before he becomes enlightened. You know, when he becomes enlightened, meaning he's connected to the harmony of all, then he can see his doing for what it really was, which was a predetermined part of the mosaic. I have a good kind of experience as a teacher here where I would give the same cue in my asana class, like for years, like, you know, I have a student who I've been seeing for a really long time and I'll give her the same cue, you know, take the shoulder heads back as you draw the sternum forward. It's the same cue in uh, Up Dog that I've been giving for a while. One day, she comes up and she's like, oh my God, when you said that today, take the shoulders back and bring the sternum forward. It changed my whole pose. And I'm sitting here thinking, huh, yeah. And I realized like, it's hubris. Anybody, anything. People will hear only what they're ready and willing to hear. You could talk to them all night. And sometimes people will text me the next day after this and say, oh my God, when you said this, this, and this, it like changed my life. And then I said, neither that, that, or that, you know? And I really didn't mean what they said. Like when they explained what they thought I said, (laughs) I didn't mean it. I wouldn't endorse it. It's not non-duality, but it helped them. And then I'm realizing what hubris to think that I have anything to share with you. All I do is show up, yap my ass off, And you take away only what it is that you brought in with you to take away to begin with. I've given you nothing, you know? Um, So in that sense, I cannot... You didn't give us anything or helped us to build anything. You just helped us kind of like clear out the pile. Except I didn't even do that. You see that the agency involves my ability to affect your perceptual field. But your Mm -hmm. perceptual field is a determinative... 
thing. It just filters out everything that's not already in it in a way. So yeah. as a teacher, I'm starting to realize that I can't teach. It doesn't happen. You can't teach verbally. Um, you can just throw as much out there, you know, spray and pray. Um, and hopefully <laughs> something gets through, but it won't get through unless it's already coming through for them. Meaning, so it's not, almost, yes, it's not teaching. It's like exposing and like kind of seeing what sticks to people. Not even that, because I can show people something, they'll see a different thing. That's what that example in the Instagram message is showing. I showed something. In fact, for four hours, I was showing something and she got a whole different thing the next day. <laughs> there is no, there was not even a little overlap. You know what she got from my talk. I, I would never have gotten it from what I said, but she got it. And the point of the matter is something is going on here. That's very mysterious. We sit together and something is happening. It's non-verbal. It's non-conceptual. We come together, we're in love together, and then we all go to bed and we feel happy. And then we're excited to see each other again next uh, month. We might as well be a polo club. You know, we could be doing <laughs> work on each other, playing. I'm allergic to horses, so. What's that, Claire? I said I'm allergic to horses. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh. We'll do field that's a, that's a unique We'll figure out something. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we ride cows? Yeah. Why don't we ride cows? It would be just as productive as this. <laughs> it's funny. It goes to show like, um, see, that's the difference between your ego and my ego. Whereas like I would have been in my feelings if somebody, because I consider one of my things I pride to Corey prides themselves on is that um, I'm a very good listener. I'm an active listener. I don't really like to talk unless it's like really good conversation. Um, so I listen a lot. I listen to people. Um, but I get frustrated when I give them solutions to what it is that they're telling me, whether it be a problem, and they don't listen. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like they just need to talk it out, but they're not um, putting those, putting what I told them, what I act, what I've sat in this space with you to listen to you, just talk, 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 talk. And it just, you're not listening. You know what I'm saying? It just, I get so frustrated. I know. And that's, I think, mm. why we need to... The illusion of free will is one of those illusions that causes us great distress in life. You mm. know, so the perceptual mechanism is an error there. Separation, time, free will. These are three errors. Mm. Um, spirituality is the work of correcting these three errors. So if you're able to act, like just truly act without seeing yourself as the doer, you're free. Mm. Do you see? Yeah. And mm -hmm. you're right, Corey. It's so subtle. I meet a lot of people who say they're free every day. <laughs> it's so <laughs> subtle. It's so subtle. Yes, Claire. Yeah. Aren't these like ragas in a way? Like if I have like a some sort of way of seeing the world and you're talking to me, everything you say is going to come through that. And then I'm going to see it. Like today you said spring and it had nothing to do with spring, but the word spring, I was like, I love spring. <laughs> but that's because I was just like thinking about spring so much but like it is just because you're projecting something out and everything that yeah. comes in is going to be that color right and exactly. there's nothing besides spirituality that can clear that away oh I love that Claire raga it's a great word raga coloring you know the process of coloring it's you're just gonna see 
only the way the prism is angled, no matter what light I throw at you, it's going to come through a certain way. You're so right. I remember I said, uh, let the spring breeze of spirit unfurl the soft petals. of." So I was making yeah. some kind of nonsense po- uh, poetry at you. And then you were like, you dismissed my entire verse. I'm sorry. <laughs> for winter to end. <laughs> I just said I'm jazzed on spring. Maybe I, maybe I meant it on the same level as you meant it, that I'm jazzed on the spring breeze of our spirituality. No, it's true. It's true. Because it's, it's both. Both is true. The only reason I use the word spring is because you're thinking about spring. And the only reason you saw it as spring is, you know, it's like this weird kind of echo chamber in a way of just energy. But you're right. Raga is a really important way to phrase it, which is you. And you know what? Like, it's a chakra plain thing, too. It's like if you are interested in power, you will see someone only in those terms and you will only pick out things that they say that pertain to that project of yours, you know. So some of you will come Mm. and you will be in a throat chakra orientation and you will hear something in this spiritual teaching. And then some of you will come and you'll be in that Agnya chakra orientation, that third eye chakra, and you'll hear something else. Both are true, but on different truth levels. And uh, it would be a real sham to consider that I did any of those three things. So if somebody comes, and I've had this like, you know, if somebody comes and they um, they perceive something romantic going on. You know, th- this used to be a problem with me because what? yeah, okay, like this people. It's weird. Like, they, do they fall in love with the teacher? No, you know, because I'll I'll say things like, "Oh, you're so beautiful," or I'll look at them with googly eyes. I mean, of course, I'm madly in love with all of you, like madly, you know. And then they will come to my house. It's happened and be really weird. And, and I would be in my pod, would be kind of like a self-conscious. Like, did I say something? You know, can I protect myself from that encounter? Could I protect them from that encounter? What can I say that will prevent that projection? How much more asexual can I make myself appear on? You know, like, like <laughs> and then there's a part of me that's like, huh, you know? You know, so it's like, it's going on. <laughs> <laughs> It was really helpful to see in that I would listen to my recordings again and be like, okay, so you're this person. Let's listen to see what could have given you this idea. And I realized like, nah, if you're just, if you're coming in with a second chakra lens, you're going to see it through that lens, regardless of what the person does. And if you're coming in through a power lens, you're going to want a cult. And if you're coming in through a heart chakra lens, it's like, so that coloring is totally on that person and everything I say gets distorted into that. So that takes away this illusion of agency, Corey, because everything you do doesn't really have the effect that you think it does. So have you really acted if no effect obtained from your action? You know? Got it. Yeah. Oh, what was it? Um, like as being a non-dualist, how... Like, we, like you were talking about a paradox and how those things work and how we shouldn't view everything as just black and white, but like something there. And I, it's just been hitting in my head. I was like, so what, how do you view it? Is it gray or is it, um, what's it called? Is it marbled? Is it gray or is it marbled? Are these like things mixed together? Like, is it like, is it blue and red becoming purple? Or is it just blue and red and different shades and streaks mixing together in like a, like a marble cheesecake or something? You know, it's an interesting question 
And there is an error in the question, the way it's phrased. And I should point it okay. out. You are asking about what the object event is. So what will it appear as? You know, will it be a mosaic? Is it marble? But notice that every color is an object of awareness. Mm -hmm. So color is an object of seeing. To live non-duality is to be centered in the seeing, not the seen. So you're more interested in the medium through which that color vibrates. And it's not so much that there is a certain color. So when you see blue, there will be blue. I mean, yeah. I know you're using a metaphor and I'm still, I'm trying to stay within your metaphor, but say you're living mm -hmm. and it's all blue. It's going to be blue. It's not going to be gray or like, you know, it's going to, you're going to. Um, yeah. You're going to see everything within the lightest and the darkest of blue. Yeah. And you're not interested in blue. You're interested in the seeing underneath blue. So here's the thing. Nothing yeah. has changed about Nish in a way. He is still the same person he's always been with some minor differences, getting involved in the same trouble. The only change that has happened to me is that I'm no longer as involved with that as I used to be, you know? So what's uh -huh. happened is gone is my ambition, though I still see Nish having some. So I can watch Nish kind of in the process of, I don't know, I, I watched Nish today put up, um, like there's a, a fine line between sharing and business. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. he's got to pay rent and he's got to eat. But does he really need to put a third Instagram story promoting his Patreon today? Is that Nish looking to pay rent? Or is that Nish looking for luxury? It's probably oh. the You know, so like Nish is doing all that stuff. He's just going to do that. I'm just not as involved with it as I used to be. In oh, a way, okay. my non-involvement has dissolved some of Nisha's, like his carbon footprint, so to speak, in the world, I can see has mm -hmm. reduced. He no longer causes drama with people, except when he tells them <laughs> they're wrong on a Zoom screen and they get pretty angry. But you know, like- Oh my I, God, has, have you actually had to fight with somebody, like argue with them? Oh my Zoom. God, Hindu nationalists, Christians, uh, uh, Christian Orthodox Christians, Jewish people defending the Kabbalah from the Goyim practice of it. Oh, oh man, no. every day on TikTok, it is a war. You should see my DMs, oh, dude. No. <laughs> but, um, oh my God. But the drama in my personal life is absent. You know, there's no more like roommate drama, no more relationship drama. No more, there's no drama, but that's the only thing that I've noticed. The health is better, you know, and this is what <laughs> yeah. I'm noticing, but it doesn't even matter that I'm noticing them because while this drunken monkey is here counting his mala beads, yapping away at you all night, I'm not. Does that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> yes, Claire. Can that be integrated though? Like, can you intervene? Like, say you see Nish posting a story and you're like, you have enough money <laughs> or whatever oh, it is. You have more you're than enough. <laughs> I'm flush with cash. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> Look at this new scarf. Wow, doing... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you can intervene, right? You can, uh, right? You don't just completely check out and be like, watch this guy hold up a 7-Eleven. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. In that um, it's a child 
and there definitely needs some guidance at times, but the intervention is, it's a very gentle of like swiper, no swiping, you know, because you don't really have to fight swiper, right? Dora, the explorer. I hope everybody knows that reference. Yes. I've never yet met, I've never spoken to anybody from any country yet who hasn't understood the Dora, the explorer reference, which I think is quite incredible. <laughs> but uh, Dora. Um, Dora she, is she a was, universal truth. Yes. Dora is, is an archetype. Dora is <laughs> a platonic form. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Boots is the real bra. Anyway, um, Dora doesn't have to fight um, Swiper. She only has to notice him. Swiper, no swiping. That's enough to... So with the ego, it's like that too. The ego works in the shadows. It likes to kind of be backstage. If you can be backstage of that, that, that awareness is enough to dissolve the action. That being said, Claire, there are still some scars that express themselves and the trajectory just, it, it's already started. So what I, what I can do is prevent new samskaras, you know? So I, I with, in the non-dual space, can prevent a samskara from arising. But if it's already arisen, the arc must be lived through. The thing must be suffered, if you will, you know? So Nish exists now in body, believe it or not, to suffer. Yes, actually, what is that? Good, good thing Swiper only has one samskara. <laughs> He's a simplistic being in that way, isn't he? He just has to be reminded, no swiping, all right, fuck, gets that out of there. Next episode, right back. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, it's a great question, Claire. To what degree do you intervene? You know, because honestly, not at all. That's that's ideal. Ideally, not at all. You know, um, because that's only once you get to that like place of what what you were saying, where action is flowing out of you, then you don't intervene. But if you're still like on the way to that, you say swipe or no swiping, right? You catch yourself. Yeah, you catch yourself. And I definitely would like to meditate on that more, Claire, because it seems, relatively speaking, there is stuff to intervene in, in the spiritual path. So there are, but all you're doing, Claire, I think, is intervening anytime an action takes you away from this non-dual space. So if you watch yourself doing something and you're involved in that doing, and you know that that doing is reifying a construct that is an ashuddha vikalpa, that was so convoluted. But if you find that your doing is um, internalizing in you an idea that's, it feels contracted. So there's a feeling of being contracted, stuck, like, oh, I'm not in this spacious, open, loving place. Then you intervene and be like, swipe or no swiping. That's taking you away from this space. You know, and then while that's happening, oh, sorry, no bye cats. cats, bye bye cats. <laughs> so here, here, uh, I'm gonna do a terrible job of trying to ask this question. But so let's say you're not that conscious to know like when your world is shrinking or whatever how you put it right. right. So when you're becoming contracted. Is it then safe-ish or like safe adjacent to follow certain like spiritual laws? Like don't swear, don't be violent, don't like, you know, um, 
whatever it is, think bad thoughts or not, not pushing away bad thoughts, but just like following those like rules. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Discipline is, uh, it's essential, you know, but here's another thing that's weird, Claire, is that I have a, like, you know, this theory. So Nish is a pretty rigorous spiritual discipline. If I may, if, you know, if I may humbly say so, like my whole day is just practice, but it doesn't feel like, it's so weird. There was a phase where I would miss daily meditation. Like I would just go to bed, would, would miss it. It seemed like in that time, there was nothing that I could have done to not do it. And today there's nothing that I could do to miss it. You know, it's the samskaras just evolve in a certain way. And the trajectory now seems to be Nish is a nut about his asana, his pranayama, his meditation. But that discipline, at a, there was a time when it felt like discipline, I think, when it felt like, okay, I have to do the law. I have to, and there are days when I'm sleepy at night. And the last thing I want to do is, you know, like the last thing I want to do is wake up at, five and do it you know like there are that moment arises but you're still always watching it so there's this great non-doing if if that wow you you caught me claire i'm definitely having trouble articulating something can i add something nish please mikey please save me um, tell me if this is your your experience nish but it feels like when the samskara arises it's arising in three-dimensional space as a restriction a contraction a vibratory contraction, and that when you put your, when the attention goes to it, or it, the attention, sorry, the attention is what's contracted. Maybe it's like when when you sort of put awareness on it to dissolve it, it does say what it is. It sort of like says the thought that it was, almost like it's got a I don't want to say on a tag on it, but it it kind of alerts you to what was the boggle, right? What was the contraction? Like the flavor of it or the, yeah, or the literal thought that caused it maybe. Oh, okay. Nish, do, do you experience that at all? Nish? I don't know though. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. You're talking about identifying some scars, Mikey, like knowing that yeah. as a seed of a thought, as a seed of an action, as a seed of a habit. I definitely can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It, or once they're letting go, they're kind of like, this is what I was. They sort it's almost like, you're re, you're you're going back and having the thought again and letting go of it and then the attention pops back to the sheet that Nish always talks about like it it decon- the kink in the elastic like releases i don't know and it says this is what i was but i don't know yes we are in very refined territory here and i realize the difficulty with this conversation is that this experience is so nonverbal and preconceptual that I am frustrated by my inability to parse it for you. The Mike, best that we can do, Mike, is Yes, Travis? It originally arises in 4D space. Once you've embodied it, it's in 3D space. Ah, uh, yes. Because it's sometimes the behind the veil. And then go yes. back to it and have the thought again to, to dismiss it or to, to recontextualize it. But initially, it's 4D space. You embody it in 3D space. Beautifully said. You nailed it. Yeah. Or maybe 5D space. That may be a technical thing online. Or or, to put it niche, I think to translate, maybe would you say, tell me if I'm wrong here, Travis. It's almost like it's, it kicks. Oh, I guess when the, when there's still veils or there's still veils, like it's almost like it comes from 
outside of the veil? And then is that what you're saying, Travis? Because the veil is sort of the 4D space that we can't quite. I, I'm seeing the 4D as the potential to embody. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The If the samskara is me drinking this coffee right here, the potential was me seeing myself pick it up and drinking it before I do it. It becomes 3D when I actually embody. And maybe there's some 5D element beyond that about like, well, why coffee? And how did this coffee get here? And what, what is it that brought coffee? And I, I don't know. So it's the 45 5D thing I'm not sure about. But yes. the 4D is the potential to embody. It's shown to you before, just before you do. You, you, you see it almost playing out just before. But, but what if it's not like such a concrete thought and more of like um an impulse or an emotion like i think it's 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 easy to do with like thoughts you're like oh i had that thought but what if it's like i woke up and the first thing i did was like something mildly violent you know what i mean like, you know what i mean like uh, it could be that you're to to use some tiktok language here that your frequency is low enough that you didn't see it happen in 5d shown to you in 4d embodied in 3d you've just already embodied it you've already fallen into the samskar mm-hmm. but then when i notice it i but can't you, you intervene you out of bed you do the thing whatever it is you've already fallen into the action yeah there is a linguistic theory in tantra describing four levels of cognition and there is a very sophisticated theory about you know words actual words mentalese which is the thoughts deeper than that is a kind of maybe cultural conditioning or complexes or subconscious mind um, but deeper than that is something called the pashanti level which is deep intuition and it doesn't have it dimensionally as spatially as you describe it mikey but the idea is that as you deepen your meditative practice as to you know, borrow travis's terms you step up your frequency so to speak in order to be able to interact with more refined parts of that. Yet all of it is one thing, experienced on different levels of linguistic structure. You know, so a word is more concrete than a mentalese word. Mentalese is a language you speak in the mind, which is half word, half image. It's a little subtler. So that's a thought. Subtler than that is what you were describing, Claire, an impulse or an emotion. Patanjali, I think maps samskara onto that, that impulse. And that impulse is connected to a cultural memory that Patanjali says is your pranamayokosha storing up samskaras from previous lives. What Carl Jung or maybe even Freud would call complexes in the repository of your subconscious. Basically, these 20th century um, philosophers or psychologists are saying there's a dimension to the mind behind the cognates. And now we're saying there's actually one more underneath that, which we might call 5D. It gets increasingly abstract because there's no longer any languaging in terms of mentalese even for that stuff. So that's why there is kind of a poetic approach when we get to this point. You talk in terms of Shiva and Shakti. You, know, you talk in terms of Kundalini. And you felt today, Claire, that movement in your body. Serpentine, yes? Starting in the spine. It's not circular. It's like, you know, like that, yes? 
how to describe that except to say kundalini coiling the spine undulates it's just like how to talk about it except for jacob's ladder and jesus's 33 years and it's enshrined in mysticism moses's stick naked yeah it became a snake yeah we all feel it but we get stuck when we try to talk about it and that's because we're getting closer to the subject so i really appreciate this um and i will meditate on it at thursday night and i know travis you come on mondays not thursdays i will get into the pashan thursdays as well okay oh, thursdays is a smaller group it's a little smaller and a little more uh, i guess you could say focus group it's very like technical i don't know if that's true claire i mean that's my intention with thursdays <laughs> but maybe it's not i don't not. know i don't know but Nish, yeah that's I... with huh oh sorry sorry please i, I didn't mean to interrupt Um, I I was curious for clarification on the um the thing where you're talking about them like how it gets more and more vague with the making kind of models out of or trying to kind of create language out of it is that urge to model it uh, to create sort of stacking regressive samskaras themselves like I think that that's one thing that I've had an issue with is like everything that I'm experiencing kind of tracking visually in the visual space like creating a model of it like you know i i caught myself or you caught it interesting when you when you said like these things are happening in 3d space and i kind of went no wait a second they're all sort of happening in the heart center i'm i might be modeling them in 3d space and that could be an issue and is there a way to get rid of that cuz i think that's something outside of my awareness is that visual repetition of everything i'm experiencing do you mind speaking to that or anybody like Mike you're a powerful visual learner you know like i remember that that drawing you showed me <laughs> right of the um antelope yeah yes. the drip yeah um i like that the problem like, in other words like can, can yeah, that the, the mikey the model building that you're talking about especially if it's a linguistic model building should be to translate it to others ha huh. or that's what that's what the goal should be at least because if you try to build yourself a linguistic model you could get caught in that repetition right yeah there are some spiritual cultures like for instance taoism that are not very interested in model making i mean the dao does open with the dao that could be spoken of is not the dao right <laughs> so there are many cultures like even the jewish culture and the islamic culture are very interested in this So the Jewish culture forbids um any kind of model making for god right so there's no name for god even is this the same kind of logic behind don't draw the prophet muhammad do you think is yes. the same so i was just about that? to say that ah uh, yeah i was just about to say that in islam there is it's forbidden to map spatially Th- these ideas so you know calligraphy is very sacred to muslim art have you seen the calligraphy art it's like yeah check it out just go google they use words from the quran like they'll take a uh, passages of the quran rearrange all the arabic and create images like trees and dancing dervishes it's like such a a hack you know it's not actually but it is in spatial and it's uh, beautiful Now, the I've idea was that Travis? I've definitely seen that kind of art before. Yeah, you see it in Persia town where that's the way Islamic artists interact with 
not being allowed scripturally to represent things spatially. Because it's true, if you take God, which is outside of space and time, and bring it down to the level of linguistic structures, which are in time, and visual structures, which are in space, um, that's dangerous, you know. But Hinduism has a different approach. So the cultures around the Indian subcontinent, like the South Asian philosophies, are pretty heady. I don't know if you've noticed, but we love ourselves some dizzying philosophy. So there are some very complex matters. I don't think a translation is out yet, but you will, you will uh, calm your pants reading the title. <laughs> I've heard of this name. Okay, this is like the second time this is being recommended. He's one of our geniuses. His work is too refined for me. It's like, ah, it's so hard. But Tantra Loka, it's so hard that he wrote it three times. It was so difficult that he even wrote Tantra Sara. Tantra Loka means like the world of Tantra. Tantra Sara means the essence of Tantra. Even that was too hard, so he wrote it again. <laughs> the idea is there are, Mikey, in India, in Kashmir especially, these polymaths. They weren't just like mystics. They were linguistic experts, philosophers, aesthetic poets, artists. And they were polymaths who really did a lot of very sophisticated model making. And I forget one of the models, but it does correspond quite nicely to these levels um, of impulse to thought to action and at which level can we interact. And it's a linguistic model. So I'll offer it to you next week. And Mikey, Yantra is all spatial. So I, I invite you to check out the Sri Yantra. Do you know what that is? No. Google it, the Sri Yantra. So it's a geometric, sacred geometry, if you will. Uh, the Hebrew mystics did this a lot. Have you seen Metatron's cube? That's yeah, yeah, okay. And oh, Metatron's cube, you can do a lot of math with that. You can draw all of what we call the platonic solids. It's all in that cube. You know, then you've got the flower of life. Now, this stuff is jnana shakti, meaning it's God's power of intellect. It's the ability to create structure in nature. Right. Physicists are really like clued into this, you know? So mathematicians are clued into this. When you're studying fractals, when you've got holograph theory, when you're looking at what are the Fibonacci, even like a Fibonacci sequence, you know, when you're looking at these things, you tap into a certain power known as Jnana Shakti. This is interesting to you, Mikey. You should pursue it. So you should definitely check out Yantra because it's not at all a mistake or a coincidence that you are a powerful spatial learner huh. and that you, you make models. Even when you were showing me the nine, you know, the Enneagrams you were showing me. Right. Like that is a spatial model. Remember the tattvas, the yeah. 36 tattvas I showed you. So you're saying that these kinds of, this kind of spatial geometric um, modeling is, is kind of equivocates to the way that the universe we conceive of the balancing and the homeostatic mechanisms that are sort of underlie the whole grand yeah. mosaic. Yes. Yes. And I want to suggest this reality is non-conceptual. It's non-verbal. Not, not only is it pre-verbal and pre-conceptual, it's non-conceptual and non-verbal. Most spiritual schools say this. Probably also pre-informational. Pre-informational. Exactly. Nothing right. can be said about it. No experiments can be done to prove it since it, um, it, it's a prerequisite for all experiment and not the other way around. 
So it is reality, capital R, what the Buddhists call tatata or suchness. This reality is non-conceptual, but here we are, and between us and reality, the only thing between us and reality is our thought constructs. There are only two kinds of thought constructs you can entertain at any given moment. One, and we've talked about this before, Mikey, one is uh, Ashuddha Vikalpa, which most of us carry around all our lives. And Ashuddha Vikalpa means an impure thought construct, meaning, or unclean. I, I, it's so hard to translate to English because of all the connotations. <laughs> Ashuddha, unaligned, let's say unaligned thought construct. This means you are entertaining a view about reality, in physical reality even. You've got a model that doesn't, like maybe it's a, it's a Newtonian model, but now we're living in a world of Einsteinian models. Like it's, it's that you're holding a model about reality and by consequence about yourself, about the world, that is not aligned to this non-conceptual, non-informational ground of being. So you learn spiritual philosophies in order to purify your vikalpas so you can move from holding ashuddha vikalpas to shuddha vikalpas. A shuddha vikalpa is a thought construct that isn't reality. This is most important. It's not real. It's still a vikalpa. Vikalpa means a uh, uh, superimposition or literally delusion. Actually, fancy, fancy. That's the best English word. Now I get so excited about this etymology. But now ashuddha vikalpa gets replaced with shuddha vikalpa. What happens, according to tantra, is that the ashuddha vikalpa was a kink in the hose. It prevented the energy of, say, energy sparingly, of reality to permeate your being. Notice what happens when an idea resonates with you, like something clicks in your mind. Something happens to you, right? There's a surge of energy, enthusiasm, excitement, you know. That's what happens when you find a model that works. So the flower of life, the Kabbalistic tree, you look at it and it doesn't make sense. And then you work with it and suddenly it clicks your mind like is obliterated. If a model works and then you try to model why the model works, you ruin the model. Right. It's still a second degree. Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you're right, Travis. Models so, are extreme reductions. Yeah. So operate within the framework that's working. Mm. Say that again. Operate within the model or the framework that is working. Instead of being like, oh, why does this work? That then creates that secondary model around it, which may or may, may or may not interfere. I could I could see it actually being useful at times. So Nish, uh, that that's thank you so much, Travis. That that's that's gonna give me a lot to chew on. That's beautiful, um, Nish. So when you're talking about that kink in the hose, I was wondering if maybe we could sort of linguistically tie it back to what Claire was saying. Um, in that when it kinks. And you're, you're talking about it like it's, it's if we took the corollary or the inverse of what you were saying, that when it releases, it sort of lets that energy or I would say a, a, a terrain of awareness or territory, right, is suddenly accessible. When it kinks, it's, is it possible to say that it's almost like an area in which we somehow have chosen to have an aversion or something in that to mask that area of awareness or to, it almost feels like these veils are to use an acoustic analogy feels a little bit like they're like band passes where they're kind of like, you know, when you take an EQ and you like band pass a, a spectrum of sound, it, it is, does it feel like these sliding masks, you know, you're talking about, we're talking about veils and outside of 40 reality is it that our awareness 
is sort of um, has masked itself, squinched it, kinked itself yeah. um, to block it on kind of on purpose. Just our, the purpose was outside of our awareness. You know, the acoustic model is a good one because it has been invoked a lot in Indian philosophy, the idea of intervals. Hmm. I mean, the concept is spanda, which is this world is vibrational. And it's more, uh, do you know about overtones? You know, like every- Yes, yes, vaguely. Yeah, where it creates a different, yeah. And so there are two tones. And if they're a little bit flat, like if one is a little flat or a little sharp, you don't get that over, you don't get a certain interval. Mm-hmm. And what you're experiencing, like when you listen to music, it's not that you like the G major chord. You just like the interval between the first and the fifth, meaning you like the way it sounds to go from C to a G. So in music, you're identifying with the space. It's not the beat. It's the space between beats that creates a rhythm. Mm. You know, so intervals are the entirety of your emotional experience with music. Similarly, your perceptual, not felt intuitive experience of reality is a matter of harmonics. And you're right. Those band pauses happen. Your question about whether it's intentional. Now, Mm. this is a big debate. And uh, why did it happen that you forgot yourself? Why did it happen that you entertained Ashradavikalpas? How did you become unaligned? You know? And is it possible that it's a conservation of suffering? That it's the way that we in the universe help shunt away from things that we're not ready for or that we're don't have capacity to, to, to encounter? Could be. There's evolutionary theories definitely that say, you know, a being needs to have a certain spinal column. So a being needs to be upright, something you mentioned a few comments ago, that it's not helpful for a dog to have access to complete reality, but they probably have access to more reality than you and your egoic mind. Mm-hmm. You know, but the anatomy mm-hmm. of the dog might be interesting. Similarly, your spiritual anatomy, and in uh, Tantra Loka, chapter 13, Abhinava Gupta talks a lot about spiritual fitness. When are you ready to see the whole picture? You will meet a teacher when you are. So the teacher is seen as like grace, like you meet a teacher when you are ready. So how do you get spiritual fitness? This is a big debate. Dualists say by grace. So like you said, some outside agency. Dualists like that. Dualists say there is an outside agency. It stands apart from creation. It's watching this whole vibratory field. It's not reality. It's outside. It's exist. It's outside. And it decides when you're coming into alignment and it pushes you. Hmm. Abhinava Gupta says that's nonsense. <laughs> um, that outside agency is the reality itself. It's not, it doesn't exist. It is existence. And not only that, it's you. So it's a very masturbatory experience where you are starting to finish with dissonance. You wanted to listen. It's your own will. You own your own choosing to live in dissonance, to have an Ashwadha Vikalpa. Your spiritual fitness is none other than the moment where you start to ask if there's more to life than this. It required no grace. It just required a finishing with the song, so to speak. Yes. Then you yourself, I mean, after all, you are all that is, you move the field in order to come into contact with beings whose conversation, like coming into contact with Travis, with Abby, like all these beings that you meet, you brought into your sphere because something that they had to offer resonated with you. 
And then you all come to it together. You all find a Shuddha Vikalpa, which by the way, is the opening of the kink, the aligning of the acoustics. And then you get the full experience, which is non-conceptual, non-verbal. Right. Yes. To Travis's point about modeling the models, I like that you did concede, Travis, in your second breath that, yeah, sometimes modeling the model and modeling the models of the models is a necessary step to approaching the model. Um, and the reason I think, Abby, it's very helpful to work with haiku is because the haiku attempts to get to the essence of things in not even an intuitive, like it's the, the rain drops from a hornet's nest the immediacy of being like, okay, that's not even a linguistic essence. It's something else. So if you can work with the Kabbalistic tree of life and it's a work of a lifetime, right? But if you can work with the Kabbalistic tree of life in its purest, most simple form, you are closest to reality. But in order to get there, you need a lot of abstraction. Have you heard the Picasso quote? Uh, he, he's at a cafe. A woman comes up to him, hands him a napkin and says, please, I know you're Picasso. Can you make me something? And in five minutes, he sketches something and hands it to her. And then he puts the pen down and says, that will be 50,000 euros. And she's like, what? It took you five minutes to make. And Picasso says, it took me 50 years to get to the place where I could make that in five minutes. Give me my money. So the idea is it takes a lot of abstraction to get to the point where you can go beyond it. So your, your quest is good, Mikey. Keep going. Yes, Claire? I was just going to make one scriptural reference and then leave. Yeah. <laughs> but that um, God spoke to Moses and then Moses was unable to express what God said to him. So he had to use Aaron. Aaron had to translate for Moses because Moses could not uh, relay the experience at all. So Aaron had to model it for him. Yes, yes. So good. Thank you, Claire. Claire is like, Gonna drop my scriptural reference. I'm gonna mic drop and I'm going to leave in truly dignified clarion fashion. <laughs> Thank you all so much, guys. It was really nice. Good night. It was good. Bye. Bye. Oh, so good. Yeah, today is today is like particularly deep. It's starting to sound like Thursday. I love it. I have a question, but based off of what Claire was saying, um, with Moses not being able to interpret the message that was given, so he needed a translator. Um, you hear a lot with the spiritual community, like as far as like getting downloads, which how do you feel about that? Because I don't like the idea of like something from an outside source coming, you know, delivering this like indecipherable message. Is that a thing or, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, like, we we non-dualists hate outside source nonsense also. You know, literally, scripturally, we call this the nonsense prattling of dualists. It's my favorite line. <laughs> there are two lines that I love. One is from the Kula Andarva Tantra, which is, are donkeys great yogis because they walk around naked, covered in dirt all day? Are minas great scholars because they can parrot back the words of their betters? <laughs> I love that line. And then the other line is, yes, Mikey, good night. Also, I need to respond to your email. And the answer is yes. Yes to both counts. Yes, you can attend as a scholar. And yes, we can do some privates. And oh, right. On. Yeah, take your time. Whenever. <laughs> Good night. Good night, Mikey. Yes. Um, so, Corey, interestingly enough, the line is... Uh, nonsense prattling of dualist. The reason we say that is because 
it is kind of absurd to consider that there's this outside higher force that gives downloads that are incomprehensible to you. And you're just like in awe of this being. I mean, what a sadistic <laughs> being, you know, like what is this alien being's intention? It's just kind of weird and it's hard to verify. But in non-duality, the idea is that you're, what it is to have a download is to come into contact with a part of yourself that's much deeper than the one you're used to experiencing. And so there's a period between this you and the deeper you where you're not quite sure what's going on because you're still seeing things in your previous use terms. Mm -hmm. That's when you might not understand what's going on. It feels like it's coming from out of nowhere. It feels like it's coming from beyond you. But if you eliminate the notion that there is a beyond you, mm -hmm. then you're, you know, you're done with this dualistic idea. Okay. Be very careful though, because the wave belongs to the ocean. The ocean does not belong to the wave. Mm. Do you see? Mm -hmm. So to say your ego is the only thing that exists is not the point. The you we're talking about here is the entire cosmos and, and beyond that, it's all things. So the example Ramakrishna gives is if you walked into a court, a, a beggar walks into a court and says, I am friends with the king. They'll think he's a madman. But if the king goes into the, the, the um, street, meets the beggar and invites him to court and says, hi, you sit here. That's all fine, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. there's a difference there's a difference so the ego is not what we're talking about and that's why to the ego it can feel like it's coming from beyond the ego in non-duality we say it's it's still you and it's more you than the ego is you but it's it's you are coming up with your own download mm -hmm. it's just something you weren't aware of so it seems very foreign to you Yes, it's a new way of seeing. You're reframing the world. It's a new model and it feels more energetically vibrant, more viable, more exciting. There's a feeling to it, you know? And that, that model is likely composed of uh, information-dense symbols that are quickly connected that you see and experience that your ego doesn't have the words to describe. Information-dense Yes. So when someone says they've got a download and they kind of don't know how to go about saying it, it's likely something like that. Got it. Yes. Good. The two words you might want to research, Corey, is one is Samavesha. I can't put the accents in the chat, but it's Samavesha. So there's a dot underneath the S. Mm. Um, but Samavesha is the sudden influx of energy following a spiritual moment. So as Travis said, it's information dense. It's probably imagistic and impressionistic and non-verbal. So that's why it feels like, ah, oh, holy ghost, you know? <laughs> I got the spirit. I'm so overwhelmed. I got, yeah. yeah, I'm overwhelmed. I'm speaking in tongues. Like that's another way where people try to express non-verbally by they just like, you know, jazz is exactly that, you know? So Samavesha, influx of spirituality. Now Shaktipata, Literally, I typed it twice. It's so dumb of me. Shakti pata means descent of power. Shakti means power. Pata means to come down. So Shakti pata is when suddenly you feel like from on high, a lightning bolt struck you and you're like, Ugh. <laughs> mm -hmm. these are all documented and uh, observable experience that you will have in your spiritual life. It can all feel like it's coming from somewhere else. Though Abhinava Gupta in Tantra Loka Abhinava. I don't, I don't think it's very helpful for me to give you this 
citation because it's not out in English yet, but I think you can read the first chapter from Tantra Loka and Christopher Wallace's blog. I think he did try. Yeah, no, he definitely translated the first chapter on the blog. I forget what the blog is called, but just type Christopher Wallace blog or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he in chapter 13 talks all about this and he says, look, it might feel like it's coming from outside of you, but brah, let's be real. It's really not. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because my grandfather or my dad's father, um, he was raised in, I think he was raised in Mississippi, like rural, that type of deal. Um, but he was out in the field or whatever. And my dad said he remembers, or is either my dad or my dad's mom. So you remember him coming to the house with like tears in his eyes saying that like God came or something like that. Like he wasn't religious, but all of a sudden in that moment, something happened. And, but that sent him down a path of like re- organized religion or whatever. So it's like, yeah, no, it's, it's risky because there's like mm-hmm. a born again Christian thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. So in the yogic philosophies, they say, be very careful. You're not special. Like that's always re- like repeated. <laughs> like we're not special unless everyone else is also special, which makes exactly. you not special. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if something like that happens, obviously you want to talk about it. It'd be like, I have, you know, the, the word or something like that you know you want to go preach to everybody and that's the same thing with spiritual awakenings you know you come out of the the shell of your cocoon new perceptions new you know and you, you're excited you want to like tell people um but you know it's hard to communicate where you where you are at that stage with people who haven't been there you know what i'm saying so and um, you're never but it makes you feel special hmm? yes good good yes yeah. Truly. If you're telling me about the ego death, who is this I that is relating to me, the supposed death of the I? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, Avi? I just had a question uh, kind of about earlier when we were talking about like the 4D and 5D and stuff. I've always been curious because I've learned about the fourth dimension and like the scientific, um, like physics sense, but I was curious how it, like, if it's the same thing, the way you guys use it in these conversations, like, um, yeah, like I'm just curious and what you guys mean when you say like 4D, 5D. Yeah. Travis, do you want to take that for a bit? Uh, so 3D is physical space. 4D is your, 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 your personal experience of time. And then 5D is likely the, true the true unfolding of time okay and that's is that really physics and if that translates well spiritually then then that's good yeah yeah okay. no, because like for instance integral calculus or differential calculus like this idea of taking a graph and doing a certain kind of equational thing that converts an acceleration into you know like this idea of what is acceleration to velocity? And you add these dimensions, like you add time to it. Now, this is a a intellectual model that I try to explain in this sense. Before you practice asana, you know, before you did your first downward dog, you didn't feel your hamstrings. They were always there. It's just that after about an hour and a half of uttanasana, downward dog, the next day you woke up and suddenly your hamstrings were there seemingly for the first time. You know, they weren't a part of your reality before, but now they are. And I said, and the way I feel like it's like, that's how it's been in my life. You know, I've heard so many 
concepts in the spiritual community, like lucid dreaming, astral projecting, but those weren't dimensionally real for me. They weren't a dimension of my life in the same way I didn't feel my hamstrings. Now feeling my hamstrings, it's no different than feeling into other people's energies, seeing which nostril you're breathing. So like all this stuff, it's like always been there. It's just now it's a reality in your life. So that to me feels like adding dimensions. You know, there's like yeah. a new dimension. So where before you were just in your head, now you're in your body. And like this, there are different, um, maybe you could say depth, like life seems richer. There's more depth or a person who looks at a table versus a carpenter who looks at a table, that carpenter mm -hmm. sees the table with a new dimensional lens. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can imagine like an animal, they say don't, don't experience time. They don't, because Kant makes the argument that time is a human mental construct of ordering events. So an animal, you could say, exists in a certain dimensional reality, 3D. Then you have a personal experience of time and then you're in 4D. But the idea, and I think Travis puts it really beautifully, is that there is some order that supersedes that. And that in spirituality, our promise to you is that through a set of techniques, you can come to reorient your, not just your thoughts, but your perceptual mechanism to be aligned with that order of things, okay. which doesn't. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Oh, no, sorry. Um, I don't want to interrupt, cut you off, but it, yeah, that actually led into my second question that I had about this was you guys were talking also about those deeper dimensions of self and like feeling those hamstrings when you haven't felt them before. And I was, I, I asked this, but it's, I kind of know the answer, but it's kind of like, is there's a storm outside if that's what you, that's the sound. But um, yeah, it was basically just saying, is that accessible to everyone? Yes. And it is, but it's like, um, yeah, how, how, is, how do we get there? Or, or do we meet, obviously there's no work to be done. It's already going to happen, whatever happens, but um, yeah. Powerful question, Abby. Probably the most important question to ask in spirituality. Like after all this conversation, it's like, now what do I do? And here's the paradox. Yes, all it takes is one insight. So there's nothing that you need to do. It's just one insight. But it's not an intellectual insight. It's not a thought. We are all one. Um, don't, don't cling to the concepts we're unfolding. Just allow them to point to you. Just allow them to point. Because that's what these concepts do. They point to the truth. Yes. The and if Yana, point in the right direction, you see where they're leading. Don't, don't hold on to them and then go, okay, well, how do I traject these ideas out in all these different yeah. directions? Follow them really. Okay. Yeah. And Gyana says you can do that if you take a kind of a 360 view of it and maybe you'll have an insight. It's very powerful though. If you have an insight, you'll know you have it because it changes everything. Yeah. But there are also more linear or progressive parts of yoga. So jnana definitely is the hardest one and is even scripturally said to be not appropriate for this urbanized culture. You know, so jnana is only appropriate there's a 3,800 BCE India. It's kind of a hard one to walk. So jnana must be combined with a bunch of sets of practices. So I think a non-negotiable in this path is journaling right? You probably already do it, but self-interest, like that kind of thing. Another oh, yeah. non-negotiable is asana. You know, you've got to have some kind of physical, whether it's qigong or tai chi, you've got to have some kind of embodied practice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then uh, another non-negotiable is pranayama. You've got to manage your energies because right. it takes a really high frequency energy, you know, right. physically speaking, to penetrate into these realms of experience. So you'll need to conserve your strength. 
your energy right now pours through your eyes, your ears, your nose, you know, every time you interact with the world, it pulls a stream of energy out of you. So you'll need to learn a technique to draw that energy back in. Celibacy is one of those techniques, you know, um, there are a bunch of others, but mm-hmm. breath retention is mm-hmm. one of those techniques. So we do these things and suddenly things change in the body. We have this, it's, it's called a spiritual nerve to translate. Mm-hmm. When you have this, then you meditate. So meditation mm-hmm. is a technique par excellence. Everything else you do is auxiliary to the task of meditation. Okay. That's interesting. And that was something you observed about me, like the eye, the energy in like my eyes and nose and stuff. Okay. Interesting. Cool. And can you, sorry, I, um, can you repeat that list? You said pranayama, meditation. You said a few other things. Yeah. To be more complete, there's first of all, the yama, which is very important, which is non-harming, Okay. you know, non-stealing, um, Truth telling. Uh, uh, sorry, I just did the Sanskrit. Truth, truthfulness, um, continence, and non-taking of gifts. Some translation. Yeah, there needs. Okay, so don't worry about these. Like this is actually what you need. Um, yeah, no, but, it's, it's okay. But the ideal I'm, behind this is your social life, like meaning your interpersonal relationships, need to be really harmonious. Okay. So spiritual work is very difficult. It's funny, right? A lot of people get into spirituality to sort out their relationships. And now here we are saying, no, no, no. It's a prerequisite to the path. (laughs) You got to get your shit sorted. So yeah, the first step is yama. Make sure there's no drama in your life. Oh, that's like a a rhyme. I like that. Yama, so there's no drama. I dig it. The second one is niyama, which is, saucha is the biggest one, which is, I should just do it in English. Cleanliness. Uh, or you know what? Purity. That's a better translation. So it means purity in diet, purity in practice, hygiene, all that stuff. Then this one is really hard. Sandosha, which means contentment. Okay. So you've got to cultivate a feeling of kind of being all right, which again is a paradox is a lot of people get into spirituality so they can feel all right. Here I am now telling you, you got to feel all right before you do this. I feel all right, but I question when I feel all right. That's been my issue. I think I come to you with all these questions saying, yeah, I did no. this right, but then I did this wrong, but I feel like I'm doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. Not, Sandosha is not, all right. not feeling all right is the is for the meta sense of feeling all right. It's the unbalanced that brings a larger sense of balance. You have to feel you have to feel not all right in certain moments to realize that you can feel all right in it. Okay. Yes, that's. Yeah, I'm just processing a lot. Thank you guys for throwing this all at me. Of course, yeah. I, I'm yeah. not like I'm not going to try to like. Okay, I need to do this, this, this. I just want to get ideas because I'm new to this, and I I know a lot of you are veterans, and you kind of have already or not already done this, but like understand a lot of these term this terminology that I have yet to kind of process. Mm-hmm. So no, no, thank no, you, baby. I'm not a veteran. I'm a baby, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Agree with me that I don't fucking know goddamn shit. I don't know anything. <laughs> so, well, that's why I know you guys are kind of enlightened. Not gonna lie, that's what Plato said too. <laughs> Stop it! But not <laughs> meaning uh, like you're feeling good. Now, these three are most important: tapas, tapas. Actually, I said tapasya, but it's tapas, svadhyaya, ishvara pranidhana. So these are three really important ones. Tapas means austerity. 
That's the best way to translate it. But it basically means a set of practices that purify you by cutting out bad habits. It, it, basically, it's a passion for discomfort, if that makes sense. Okay. Because growth is uncomfortable. Yeah. So you've got to have this passion for that. Then Svadhyaya often gets translated as self-study. So know thyself, not the Sutan, have a journal. But really, traditionally, it means study spiritual philosophy. So right now, you're practicing Svadhyaya. You know, it inspires you. Then Ishvara Pranidhana is one of the most important, which is start to devote yourself to some higher cause. You know, so maybe it's a cause, maybe it's a deity, maybe it's a guru or a teacher or something, but start to orient yourself around service, devotion. A good way to do this is to set up an altar in your house and it can be anything. It can be a pine cone from your favorite forest. It can be books that inspire you. But importantly, every day, prostrate before the altar. You know, the idea here is to humble yourself. Um, So these are... I gave you 10 things, right? That's like a lot of things. These are all preliminary. This is all, yeah, this is all like the line to get into the line at Disneyland. Okay. (laughs) Not even the the work yet. So is it it at least the fast pass line? The line to the fast? No, no. (laughs) You're like all the way at the back with the squealing baby, the guy with his five children. Like, yeah, it's the worst. It's the line right next to the porta portable. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But quick question though, like, isn't this like, this seems like a list of like moral hygiene in a way, you know what I'm saying? Better Um, yet, better yet, we call it energetic hygiene, not moral hygiene. We don't like morality in yoga. Right. That's all I was saying. Yeah. Like morals, whatever. Like this is energetic hygiene. Um, But playing devil's advocate here, can we like, can we still pursue spirituality, like completely Kali path and just be completely just wild and hedonistic and kind of like, you know what I'm saying? Like just complete rocker vibe. Say that last, last line. Sorry. I, I missed uh, it. Just complete like rock style rocker vibe, you know, just complete, just, I don't know, just, just wild, just wild and unhinged. Hedonistically, oh, no. Wild and unhinged prerequisite. You gotta be wild, you gotta be unhinged. And I'm gonna tell you why in a moment. Do you mind if I just run to the restroom real quick? Yeah, do your thing. Two cups of tea. Yes. Gotta pee. (laughs) Corey, if you put the hotel room under your credit card, I will destroy it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, come to come down to New Orleans. That's what they're we're known for here. (laughs) Uh, I I was just in Tennessee and Kentucky, like in December. I was just Yeah, oh for real? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, that's what, that's what we do or not me personally, but that's just what the culture is known for. There's really no rules here. Sounds awesome. <laughs> it is and it isn't. I mean, it's like, if you want the wild, wild west life, then it's, it's a, definitely a city that, that kind of has a lot of that. Um, but I mean, it, it, food, it's just a lot to indulge in. It's an indulgent city. I, I definitely want to go for the music. I definitely should. I mean, Post-COVID times would probably be the best time to go, but I really enjoy jazz music. Absolutely. There's, um, you know, there's a traditional New Orleans jazz. There's, um, you see a lot of like the kids kind of reinventing it and um, making it their own. There's all kinds of influences here. Um, Just, it's just a melting pot. You know what I'm saying? Food-wise, music-wise, it's a great place. And where are you from originally? Um, New York. 
New York. Where in New York? Uh, Long Island. Long Island? Yep. Um, I was there. Actually, I lived in New York for six years. I crash landed in Long Island. I was yeah. in Huntington. I'm right, right around there. <laughs> I was staying with a friend's family in Huntington before I got my own apartment. And from there, I would commute into Manhattan once when I first got a job. And then um, we finally got our own place in Spanish Harlem. Cool. Yeah. yeah was no, fun I, I was in the city for two years, right before COVID. Okay. Yeah. It's, I can't even imagine what it's like now. I mean, I was on 116th and 3rd. And it was just like a Mecca. You know what I'm saying? Just <laughs> a lot of noise, vendors, high traffic, just a lot of uh, people. It's just insane. It was intense. You know, so I was in Queens. I actually didn't mind the city too much. But once COVID hit, it became way too claustrophobic. Once when COVID, oh, and that like there was more people like kind of all on top of each other? Or? No, that like you were restricted to your little tiny apartment and you stay in this little building and you go out for food and you go right back because you can't be around the people and you can't spread the disease and et cetera. So, mm, yeah, I felt that way about you. I really loved the city. All my money went to eating out and exploring. Um, but I did feel like once maybe around like year five, year six, I felt more like I was being herded like cattle type of thing like you know your commuting train systems you know all that stuff and then i noticed that i was i not only did i feel dehumanized but i feel like i was dehumanizing other people because when you're surrounded with that many people it becomes white noise you know what i'm saying and the subway just, how everyone's just kind of yeah everybody's kind of super focused and not like interacting at all at any level Nope. And if you try and interact, it's what do you want from me type of situation. Exactly. That's the look, you know, get that sense of what do you, what do you, what do you want? Pre-COVID, I was definitely getting that vibe from living there. And I didn't like it that at all. Yeah. And it's like, I always say New Yorkers are nice. They're just direct and they probably have a lot of stuff to do. Um, but I just thought it's funny that, you know, here coming from here, you know, I was raised with manners and stuff like that. So if I'm going into a business and somebody's behind me, of course, I'm going to open up the door for that person. And right. whenever I would do that out of habit, the person would look guaranteed. A person would look at me like I'm just crazy. Like I am just wild and crazy. Like, why are you doing this? You know, what do you want from me? That type of look. I'm just like, you guys are funny. It's a funny place. <laughs> what's up? What's up? Um, you know, I just dropped... What you have in the chat is basically the entire mapping of the Bahiranga Sadhana, which means the outer journey. Mm -hmm. Basically, this is a preparatory stage in which you prepare the body and the energy for the real work at hand. Now, of course, you can study asana on your own. Like I recommend BKS Iyengar's book called Light on Yoga. He demonstrates all of the poses. There are beautiful black and white pictures of this short Indian man doing the poses and a detailed description of all the things that you should know in the pose. I highly recommend though, finding a teacher to correct your alignment and work with that. Now, it's important though, Abby, that you don't do too much too soon. You know, So like start off with only what you're willing to put in. So for in the beginning, it might just be an hour a day, maybe even less, maybe like 20 minutes a day, you know? Mm -hmm. And then as your practice evolves, it will be an hour a day and then two hours a day. And then you're doing four hour chunks. And like mm -hmm. that, your whole life will become practice. Importantly, though, this is what you do. Once you do asana and pranayama, 
And you know what? I recommend asana and pranayama just as this, this is your light, your battery. You can't do without it. And that will generate no drama in your social life. It will generate better energetic habits, as Corey pointed out. So I think that we put the cart before the horse a little bit when we said yamas and niyamas first. Okay. I would say, no, asana and pranayama first. And then, you know, now Mm -hmm. if you do this, you will achieve what is known as pratyahara, Mm -hmm. which is your life reorients. Cool. Yeah. I love this spelling. I like being, it's being spelled out for me. (laughs) That's what Patanjali wants to do. Wants to spell out the path. Yeah. And then this stuff probably is not even really worth getting into because it's the, the yoga proper, or it's called Samayama, which is true yoga or higher yoga. Everything else has led up to this. Now you're on the ride. You know, you were in the line to the line and you're in the line. Now you're on the ride. It can be really hard though, Abby, without, yeah, super yoga, real yoga. Super. <laughs> it can be really hard without a teacher or like, you know, cause you're responsible for your entire journey. Mm-hmm. And so I find it quite helpful to work out of books with strong curriculums in them. Oh. You know, I'm, I'm working on one myself right now, um, but there are a few great ones out there like Liam Thomas, Christopher, I think I mentioned this earlier, but he's got a book called Kabbalah Magic and the Great Work mm-hmm. of Self-Transformation. Definitely pick that up. It might not be for you, but it, for me, was very helpful because it's um, something you can do alongside Asana. And Corey, you asked this question earlier too. Um, it gives you a reading list depending on what stage you're on. And it gives you sets of rituals to practice every day for one hour a day. And the program itself is about four years long. Mm. <laughs> so it's pretty intense. But <laughs> it, yeah. Sorry, um, sorry. No, no, no. But one thing I do have to stress though, Abby, is that like you have an interest, which is the most important thing. And you'll start pursuing it only in proportion to your interest. So don't take on more than you can chew. Just enjoy it. And it does take a lot of work to get to a serious level of unfoldment. Okay. And yeah. it's something that you will eventually devote all your days to. It's a full-time thing. <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. I can't picture that right now, but maybe that would be really cool one day. Um, and I feel like I have like certain it's things. Five. It's in five. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's in five it's in 5D. It. It's not in 4D, but it's in 5D is going to have. No, that's great. I love that. And um, I was going to say, I feel like some of these things are already on the list. I already am like, have some progress at, luckily. But I do feel like when you said the drama thing, it was really funny because lately I have had a lot of drama in my life that hasn't been in my control. So um, I do have really good close friendships, but I've had drama follow me a little bit. Um, so I think, I don't know. It's just interesting you mentioned that. Yeah. Very practical concern because if there's drama, it's really hard to sit and meditate. Yeah. I'm, I'm not letting things affect me too much. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's going to be um, a little bit draining and toxic and at times. Mm-hmm. I love my close friendships though. So I need to work focus on the best, those people, I guess, yes. more than dramatic people. So Really? And Corey makes a good point about, I know Corey and Travis are going to go and trash a hotel in New York. 
<laughs> He's coming down to here. We're going to show him how we do in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing, though, that cannot be dispensed with, Corey, is spiritual discipline. So it is true that lust and greed will always categorically be a hindrance to spirituality. There can be no spirituality as long as the vibration of lust and greed exists in a person. That's a categorical mm-hmm. statement. Yeah. Because those two vibrations come from a place of lack. So as long as you're looking out into the world and being like, I want, that's going to always get in the way of you realizing that you have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, that's where the discipline comes in. So you can't live hedonistically because that's diametrically opposed to spiritual life. Um, mm. That's kind of what today's lecture was centered around, like sensuality versus sexuality, or whether the senses can be redeemed in a way. And the answer is yes, they can. But for a time, you definitely want to practice austerity or tapas. You might have to quit some stuff cold turkey, you know. Now, that being said, you do need to be like Kali and Shiva. Because remember, Kali and Shiva are weird outsider gods. They're always like kind of naked, covered in ash. They hang out in graveyards and cemeteries. (laughs) "Ah." If you practice yoga, you'll become pretty weird. As if you aren't already, but it will make you pretty weird. Like you'll start to have thoughts that other people don't really relate to. You'll, I remember the other day, um, you know, my partner, she was asking like, oh, do you think we'll be able to do this? And I wasn't able to reassure her in any way. I was just like, oh, I don't know. And I was completely okay with that. And then something will happen to you. You know, you'll just, you won't reassure anybody. If someone says, do I look fat in this? You'll be brutally honest. Or you, <laughs> you just don't give people the validation that they want, um, that they need. You see past it. You really but see that, past it. You know, something see. like that. I mean, it's not to say it's better or worse. Or anything. It just changes you. It changes the way you relate to others because naturally the way you relate to others is based on how you relate to life and that changes. So you're going to start being pretty weird. People might not get why you spend for, why you wake up at 4 a.m. They just won't get it. And they're going to want to go clubbing and you're not going to want to do that. You're going to want to, I don't know, maybe sleep at nine and spend some time with your books. And then you'll wake Mm. up in the morning and your partner will come into the living room and you're on the floor in front of the altar, rubbing some weird oil into your skin, completely naked before four hours. It's weird. (laughs) weird. (laughs) You know, Um, people are going to walk out on you with candles on and you're going to be chanting weird sounds in a dark room. So you got to be ready to be an outcast in a way you got to embrace the kind of non herd mentality effect that comes from this practice. It makes you an individual and it kind of separates you from the herd. And that can be for a lot of people disorienting, you know, mm-hmm. but, so we but find you, each other. Yes. There's tantra for you to do in the club, you know, well, it's tantra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know, it's funny when there was music, um, I was like, it's okay. It's great to teach yoga when there's club music on because if Krishna can teach Arjuna in the battlefield, yes, we can practice yoga at the club. <laughs> <laughs> That might be a new business model, club yoga, good. fog machine and dumping <laughs> yeah. techno music. It's already there. They, oh, they, no. Yeah, it's it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, but yeah, so that's what the Kali and Shiva imagery is like. Also, you start to think about death differently. Like You notice the people around you get really uncomfortable when you talk about death, you know. Or mm-hmm. when people pass away, you're no longer like, oh, I'm so sorry. 
You know, you're, yeah. it just changes your way of seeing death. And you don't see your body in the same way. You might not have the same goals. So Kali and Shiva are both corpse goddesses. They like to hang out in graveyards. They usually wear skulls and ash, all mortuary symbolism. Now, the idea is to keep, keep in mind always the body's transiency. It's what do you call it? A uh, uh, graveyard mentality, they say. It's a very liberating thing. Memento mori. Remember death. That's mm. going to make you pretty weird. That's the one thing that society doesn't like to do. You know? Mm. I've heard it as living death. I like that too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, good. St. Francis died to be born to eternal life. The Brahmin is the twice born. You know, all that kind of. Yes. Anyway, I'm sorry, Laura. I know you had a question. And I saw your hand. Oh, um. It was earlier when we were talking about, um, you mentioned the, uh, no, Corey mentioned the downloads, just the random downloads that come in and your stance on that. I was just wondering where, um, where you kind of stood on like psychic mediums and stuff. Um, does that go hand in hand? You just don't really, is that not like a thing or to some degree those people are valid and there is you know, more, they really are hearing other things. Oh, for sure. For sure. Totally valid. Totally valid. I mean, it's, it's a very well-documented phenomena across culture, mm-hmm. psychism and spiritualism that I think the evidence cannot be ignored, you know, and uh, I have had many personal experiences. You know, the, the interesting thing about growing up in a spiritual community, like if you walk along the banks of the Ganges river, mm-hmm. you will see with your own eyes, some pretty far out stuff. You know, I've seen people pick up cars with penises like that, <laughs> that control, that Hatha yoga of like being able to control every muscle in your body. Like that's a perceptual reality for, for us. You see people levitating, you know, you see people, of course, there are people imitate a lot, you know, and Vivekananda in his book, Raja Yoga says, let's consider the imitators. Surely they must be imitating something. <laughs> <laughs> you don't just imitate nothing. So Vivekananda in Raja Yoga, you will read, he talks about this guy who lived in his neighborhood who always knew what you were thinking. So him and his friends tested him by writing something on a piece of paper, going to the house, asking him something, and he knew what was on the paper. So then he wrote something on the paper and handed it back to them. They asked a question. He said, look at the paper in your pocket. It was the answer to the question. And he could do it in different languages that he didn't know. So there's a lot of documented evidence of mediums, Edgar Casey. I don't know, but it's definitely a thing. And the fact here that Raja Yoga says is that these people were born with certain psychic gifts. They were able to hear into different realms, but that's not that fancy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hope you know, it's, it's an interesting point, but in Raja Yoga, nothing is supernatural. It's just that we have a very broad concept of what is natural. Mm-hmm. You see? So our natural worldview allows for all of this stuff. I believe that that's kind of like almost normal, but just the way that like, especially Western society specifically, um, and just the amount, how much we're actually using of our brain, anything like that happens. And we're like, Oh my gosh, when really it's not that far out there, exactly. you know, it's just, it's just kind of part of it. And it also, it made me think in Ram Dass, uh, the be here now book, when I'm sorry if I say this wrong, is it Maharaji? 
Nailed it. Maharaj. Okay, awesome. Uh, when Ram Das goes in the book, he goes to eat and he's having the dinner and he knows he's on a vegetarian diet, but he goes ahead and has the biscuits and ice cream anyway. And when he gets back, Maharaji just smiles at him. He was like, did you enjoy your biscuits? And I was like, how did he do that? <laughs> and so. remember Ram Das, he was thinking he must have some computers somewhere. They've done some research on me, you know, in his first <laughs> He was so paranoid in his own words. And yeah, you're right. It's like, look, we, we, I don't want to rob you of the wonder of life, you know, be excited, be one, but really the yogis say, don't be so impressed about this stuff. Fair. <laughs> like, don't be impressed. It's, it's not extraordinary and you can do it too. And the techniques can be learned by anybody anywhere. Like Abby was saying, you know, and here's our promise to you. Nobody is special. There's no such thing as a prophet. You know, there's no special privileged person. Some people have been predisposed to prophecy, perhaps because of spiritual work in previous lives. But all of you are able to do anything that anybody else in the world could do. It's just to honor Travis, physics. It's just, you know, it's just science. And it's only a matter of knowing the technology. You're never going to be able to shoot someone with a gun unless you know how gunpowder works, how, you know, all that stuff, recoil, like that's all we teach. And then you practice it, you master it, and there's nothing you won't be able to do. Right. And it's uh, the way that I feel about it, the, uh, the mediums who it does come easily to, and they don't have to work at it and try and stuff. It just, I definitely think that that was formed in past lives. Um, just kind of like, uh, who was it? Mozart. He was a prodigy and he could play so well and he didn't, there's no way that he came in just, you know, that had to have been formed. That was yeah. cell memory, you know, yes. and it was just clinging on into that life. And so that's kind of how I feel about people who just have gifts and don't have to try. It's just, they've been, they've been fine tuning them, uh, you know, <laughs> life cycle after life cycle. So yeah. that was just kind of my question. <laughs> Good, Laura. That's a big uh, argument in favor for reincarnation. Uh, it's a very sophisticated theory that explains a lot of samskaras and spiritual work. It's kind of an important concept for yoga. And that is one of the central arguments, that and fear of death or uh, instincts. You know, like science always says, why is the young lamb afraid of the wolf? Or why does the baby bird fear the hawk? They have no experience with those things, yet they know those things are dangerous even when they're separated from their parents, you know, it must be because, and then Western science says instinct. That's like a non-word. <laughs> what is that? Instinctistic memory has to get passed down, whether it be just like some kind of geometrical shape of like bird thing. If you're the or small bird, big bird, or I don't know the other two examples you gave, but probably some kind of imagistic something gets passed through DNA. Maybe. Exactly. And they call it samskara. And then when you, when, when you see the big bird in the wild, it overlays that image. It says, okay, well, look, here it is in DNA. Fill it in with the finer detail because you've actually seen it. And be afraid because it's the thing we, the DNA told you to be afraid about. Exactly. And that process is mysterious. Like how did the DNA create that imagistic map? You know, and, and in yoga, they have an elaborate explanation. Buddha has an even better explanation. He's got 12 steps how that happened. You know, he explains each step the soul comes. Anyway, the point here is to say, yeah, Mozart totally had to do the work in the previous life. His synapses were firing because of that. Muscle memory was there. But it's sometimes a blessing and a curse at the same time, especially with regards to psychics, because a lot of these experiences can be incredibly distracting. 
to your spiritual quest because you're not the point, you know? I guess it's important to warn you that do not see spiritualists as spiritual simply because they have access to different realms. Do you know what I mean? Fair. Yeah, definitely. It's nothing to be impressed by. (laughs) Yes. And also don't accept authority from people because of Siddhis. Because a person, and I've met people who can make smells appear, but they're so like vain and they just want to attract fault. You know, they'll just tell you to smell your hand. What smell do you want? Lavender? You smell it, it comes. They're able to do this. They're people who have mastered certain powers. It's amazing. But people think that because they can do that, that gives them a certain legitimacy to teach spirituality. It doesn't. It's a, what do you call it? I'm not a conjurer of cheap tricks, says Gandalf. (laughs) (laughs) It takes more than a few psychisms to make a spiritually mature teacher. And judge, the, the only power, Laura, you should be interested in is the ability to be relaxed, happy, joyful, and at peace when you want. You know, the only impressive Absolutely. power. Yeah. Have you noticed a lot of these psychics have a very rough life? They do. Like really troubled. <laughs> yes. They just seem like it's just constant sensory overload for them. You know, a lot of them that I've watched a lot of them for a long time ran away from the gift altogether because it was just too much to handle. And only when they were ready as a person, you know, were they able to step into that gift uh, to help themselves and to help other people, you know, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. It's like professor X. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whatever your gifts are, spiritual practice above all, like practice is the name of the whole game. Yeah, that's definitely something that I need to get back to (laughs) is the actual practice. Yeah. That's been tumbling in my head since you said that. And somebody else called me out on that like a week ago. And so just to hear that again, I was like, okay, that's not a coincidence. Yes. The first thing you do in the day, Laura, it's practice. Also in the back of Ram Dass's book, Cookbook for a Spiritual Life, you know, the very back of the book mm-hmm. has the complete course for you. Really? Yeah, okay. Check it out. See, I haven't, uh, I got through the whole front part when he's kind of summing up his life story and I haven't gotten to the back and in the middle where all the brown kind of crazy pages are, I've been taking those as scripture when I, I read those I feel like if you were to read that page after page after page, none of that would resonate. So just kind of as I feel I need it, I will randomly open it up and just kind of just read a few more and then close it again. So, but yeah, I was like, I plan on getting there. (laughs) Yes. It's a great book. (laughs) I love it. And for those of you who are ready for like the hardcore stuff and by hardcore, I mean the subtle stuff, check this one out. Um, It's 112 meditations. The interesting thing about these meditations, though, there are 112 opportunities that happen every day for everybody in daily life that can be profoundly meditative. You know, it's like the moment when you wake up or the moment when you're just about to fall asleep. Pay attention to that. Watch the change of the sunset and the sunrise. Did they map to the 112 chakras? Uh, Not quite. And it's 172 or 72,000 nadis. Right. right, right. Yeah, but I so, thought it was 114 chakras. Yeah, there are many systems. In, uh, in Hatha Yoga, you have six, though. In Vedanta, you have seven planes. So those are kind of the, 
the most general systems in Tantra five. Usually in Tantra, you get early Tantra, you get five chakras. In Hebrew mysticism, you also get five. There are five centers, you know, so yeah, it's a good, good question. But yeah, no, these 112 meditations are not even that esoteric. They have nothing to do with the chakras, nothing to do with the nadis, really. It's just like every day you should be meditating, no matter what you do. You're here in class, should be interested in the breath, should be interested in the textural quality of the voice. You know, like notice the skin rest, uh, sorry, the cloth resting on your skin. All of these are moments of meditation. Would you have any advice as to how to, it sounds so common sense, but truly I have had such a hard time waking up and just not re- doing the typical, like reaching for the phone, checking social media, uh, just to wake up, uh, be in the present, express gratitude for the day before beginning anything. Um, so I, I guess just any advice, like, you know, other than like leave your phone in the completely other room. Cause I know myself and I'll just go get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're right, Laura. There's no advice. Like don't do this stuff. Yogis will never tell you not to do stuff. <laughs> you know, so whatever you're like, don't check your phone. You know, that's not, you'll never hear it's, that kind of language. The thought is immediately I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And then you're just, you're going to do it. And then someone told you not to do it. And now you feel bad for doing it. Mm, and then the, the guilt sets in. Yes. Instead, do what you do, except add some extra stuff now, which is asana. That to me is non-negotiable. You have to do asana. And yes. okay, no, you don't have to, but it's really, really profoundly powerful um, yes. because it's embodied spirituality. It, it really gets spirituality into the body away from the head. You start to, you know, because people can walk around saying, I'm, I'm free, I'm enlightened, you know? And then they come to asana and they start to get incredibly frustrated when they can't balance on their heads. I'm like, oh, so this is the free being, you know? <laughs> can't balance on your head. How free? <laughs> and then there are people who can balance on their head who think they are free. It's such a mm-hmm. joke, you know? It's, uh, oh, Instagram absolutely infuriates me. I can't even get on there. I'm just like, <laughs> yes. all the handstands and everything. I'm like, that doesn't define anything. <laughs> Exactly. So don't be impressed by asana, nor should you be impressed by psychic ability. But those things are important kind of precursors along the path, you know. So asana, definitely. Pranayama, non-negotiable. Because there's got to be a point where you take responsibility for how your energy is spent, you know. True. And so pranayama is that effort of harnessing your energy watching for the leaks that can occur and then judiciously cutting out anything that robs you of vital strength. Would you um, have any advice for certain poses? I used to practice yoga every day. Um, Back in 2017, it was a regular practice for me. And then uh, I had a really bad tear in my meniscus and my knee. And so sitting in with my legs crossed is like impossible for me now. And, um, my grandpa, he actually teaches meditation and he taught me, um, getting one of those. Oh my gosh. It's that big ball with the buckwheat grass in it. I have one of those. And he said, put it between your legs and sit on your knees. And I'm like, is that like a real thing that people do? Or I've just only ever seen people sit cross-legged. 
That's a proper pose. Do what? That's a proper pose. I don't remember. To sit on the knees. Yeah. It's Virasan or Vajrasan. But that's a good point though, Travis, because remember the asana. This is something you have to remember about the asana. It's that a lot of people think they are poses to become spiritual. So you Mm -hmm. practice them and there's like a certain way to practice them and that gets you somewhere. But actually it's the inverse. Asana were developed from people who were infused with Samavesha or the Holy Ghost, as Corey and I were talking about earlier. And then they launched into spontaneous expressions of that spirituality. You know, so now we are just on the other side of the fence, mimicking what they did when they were spiritually enlightened, you know. Mm-hmm. So everything that you do is an expression of spirituality. It's not, a, not necessarily so formulaic. Now, the important thing about asana is that the mat doesn't lie. You know, the, the, there's the, it's easy to kind of delude yourself in the mind, but not in the body. Mm-hmm. You know? So the body, if it starts to make noise, if you know, you're a downward dog and the hamstrings start talking to you and the arms are shaking, then you really see where your strength is. Yeah, you really the check- know yourself. Do what? Like the challenge of it forces you mm-hmm. to get to know yourself. And uh, it's very associated to breath and movement, which is a kind of sinking up of various levels of your being that is a simulation for what life is like as a spiritual master. Okay. I'm just trying to move back into the practice and I feel like, so to speak, check engine light comes on a lot more nowadays with the tear in my knee. And so it's just trying to work around that, you know, and relearn it all. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're welcome to come to my Wednesdays and Friday classes. That's always open to you. And uh, remember that you practice asana the way that you practice it. So you find modifications for each pose. There's no one way to do a pose and there are no poses that you have to do. So don't get the idea that you have to sit cross-legged. You don't have to do that. Yeah. And I think that I maybe made this up in my own head at one point, um, just thinking about like, um, and I, and I'm not fully educated on this, so I may sound silly, but, um, I thought sitting up cross-legged had to do something with the Kundalini energy. And so not sitting up, straight you know like I just it was I was in my own head discouraging myself like why can't you sit up like this you know yeah so I I was just seeing if that was like a like a normal thing that other people did because I tried it and it worked really well for me and I'm like well this is if this is the way then I can get straight back into it you know just on my knees instead yep there you go just modifications, <laughs> you know, modify, use props, get the bolsters, blocks like your grandfather suggested. Um, and there's always a way to practice, no matter what your situation is. You can practice in a wheelchair. You can practice in the chair. The And you can do Tai Chi or Qigong. You don't have to do asana, you know. Do Qigong. That might be better for you. Now, what the, is that? Qigong I don't even know is, what that is. You know, like, have you seen the Chinese ladies in the park? They wear white silk. Old Chinese <laughs> ladies. They're like, Oh, okay. Uh, okay, this Qigong is amazing. I, I swear by it. And, you know, the point of the, the thing that I'm trying to get across is, is it's, it's the matter of using your body. You have to reclaim your body because this is the first place where spirituality begins. There is no spirituality without the root chakra. So you must start to become so intimate with your body. You know, watch the way 
The body moves through space. Start to feel your skin and the way that you are ensconced in it. Can you feel the blood flowing? You know, you need to get so uh, attuned to the sounds of your body, you know. So this is probably, if you take nothing else from today's class, take this, be in your body. That's the foundation, be in your body. So be with your senses. Every time you eat, make it a ritual act. You know, instead of like eating from the TV or whatever, just like sit and just when you cook, watch the colors and the smells and then take your food in a beautiful setting where you just close your eyes and you focus on each bite on the palate. This is all basic stuff in the spiritual path. Smell flowers, you know, listen to the tap dripping in the bathroom. Just become curious. Listen. So for this, asana will tune you. It will tune you to your body. Now you have a laboratory. So before you reclaim your body, no spiritual philosophy can help you because you don't have a laboratory to test these ideas. You know? Yeah, become like a child again. Yeah. Look and at kids, they can do headstands. Kids have no problem. <laughs> yes. And that is something that I've actually just uh, told myself. I have children and yeah. I've actually just started to watch them. The little things that bring them joy as an adult, you forget to enjoy yourself. I was driving in the car the other day with um, my daughter and she was like, oh my gosh, look at that beautiful bird. Well, to an adult, you're just like, that's just a normal bird I see all the time in this area. But to her, she was like, that is such a beautiful bird. And when it stops staring, I was like, you know what? That is a really pretty bird, you know? And so I've really been trying to take that in just little things that look, look at this color, look at this picture and really just appreciate it for what it is and nothing more. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause as adults, we've been so programmed to fit everything into this rigid structure of this is a bird and this fits in the category of all birds. So then once it's just a bird, you fit it in that category and who cares? It's just a bird. That's just a tree. I know what trees look like. We just box everything. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so when you escape from that, you, like you said, you see it for exactly what it is and nothing else. Yes. This is a profound point because remember Dr. Kabat-Zinn, the meditation teacher and neuroscientist says a big value neuroscientifically in asana is getting out of those boxes. So he claims the reason you have this bird box or like a way of boxing reality might have to do with the way you hold your body every day. You're always oriented with the head above the heart. You know, you're always experiencing gravity in a certain way. Now, if you suddenly go upside down or start to balance Gravity changes and that causes your brain to have to recircuit to adjust for that. That breaks your boxes. Wow. That's actually a way I would compare that is um, my kids do like, like the seek and find pictures and stuff and like the highlights magazine. And my daughter was uh, stuck one day and she couldn't find like a certain picture hidden. And I turned the magazine upside down. And I said, change your perspective and see if you can find it now. And she found it. And so I would tie those hand in hand as the same thing, yes. you know. Nicely. <laughs> yeah. If you're like thinking about something and you're looking at the wall, just go upside down and keep thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So control your body. That's the first thing. And uh, 
it doesn't, there's no shape you have to be in. You know, there's no way that you have to practice asana because the West has kind of turned asana into this weird aesthetic sport thing. Asana yes. is not exercise. Please don't do it for exercise. Actually get some <laughs> exercise. <laughs> asana is not exercise. It is um, embodied spirituality. So it's a moving meditation. Yes. And that's a good place to start. In about three months after asana, Laura, then you can start to practice with pranayama then it can be quite helpful to, you know, alternate nostril breathing, you know, trying that. Yeah. Oh, hello. I hope I, I'm saying your name right, but welcome, Edrei. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, How do you say it? Edrei. Edrei. Yeah, it's Hebrew. Yeah, I'm, I'm not um, Hebrew, so I don't even know if I'm saying it right. But <laughs> Beautiful name, Edrei. Welcome. That is a Thank cool you. name. This was amazing. I um I was watching from TikTok and then the live crashed, I think. So I was like, I'll just join oh, the God. real thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully I'll see you and you guys um another time. Please come back every Monday, 7 p.m. and also uh 7:30 on Thursday with a different studio, Yoga World Heart. Yeah. All right. Good night. Good night. Nice. Good night. Good night. <laughs> so I have a quick question or two questions. One, um, growing up, you said you were from Sri Lanka. That's where you grew up. I grew up. up in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. My dad's side's from Sri Lanka. My mom's side is from Kerala, South India. Okay. All right. And did you, like for me, I grew up, um, I was raised here in Louisiana, but I was born in Amsterdam. My dad was in the Air Force. Um, but, you know, I, we had to go to church and stuff, Baptist and all that. And I hated church just who wants to be in a church and like all day that's annoying as a kid um did you feel the same way growing up in your um practice or coming up in hinduism or what a beautiful question Corey. i mean we had all night vigils to lord shiva that as a kid i was like (laughs) (laughs) all night uh but i was lucky because in the temple there's this drummer you know, they play the Mirdingam. I don't know if you ever heard it. But when I was a little boy, my parents would bring me to the temple and I was obsessed with the Mirdingam. You know, so I would go and sit in front of the Mirdingam. I, I like ignore all the ceremonies. Yeah. <laughs> my grandpa would be like, now it's time to circambulate. I'm like, I'm listening to the drummer. Excuse me. <laughs> and then Star Wars was good because when I was a kid, I liked Star Wars and Star Wars was coming out around that time. And, you know, George Lucas repackages a lot of those yogic ideals and his mystical Jedi order. And Mm -hmm. so the Jedis meditate and then there's Mace Windu slash Mace Hindu. And then there's yoga, Yoda, you know, like all that stuff. (laughs) And it's like, okay, my grandfather's teaching me stuff. And then I'm watching it on TV in this cool sci-fi universe. So that always Mm -hmm. kind of hipped me to yoga. It it kept it fresh and fun. Okay. And so how does one, um, how does one take the path of becoming a yogi? Is that a personal path? Do you have to like learn under somebody? Is there like a set of rules you have to go to become one? Yes, you do need a guru and you will find yours. Like when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Your guru is perhaps an embodied being or perhaps a disembodied being. So it might be a guru of dreams or something. Um, you do need one though. So the path of yoga stresses that it cannot be done entirely on your own. But the work is entirely personal, highly subjective, and entirely introspective. The process of one becoming a yogi 
um, there isn't a formal initiation. So anybody anywhere at any time of history could just start practicing. There is no like, it's not a closed practice. It's one of the most open practices in the world. And in fact, it's so open that we're basically shoving it down your throats. Like (laughs) Swami's here to the West since 1893. (laughs) That's something that confused me earlier today. I saw this video and someone said that Hinduism was a closed practice. And I like immediately Googled that. I was like, I think that's like the furthest thing from the truth. Hinduism is not even a word. It's a colonial term used to conglomerate a bunch of practices that are so different from one another. We get along just fine, though. I mean, I look at the Vaishnava dualists and I make fun of them all day, but I love them. To me, they're like the awkward cousin who comes to the Christmas dinner that I'm going to bully. And to them, I'm the stodgy uncle who's like stubborn and too sure of his dogma. You know, so we're like a happy family, though we fight a lot. But it's like a happy fighting, you know, it's discourse. Um, it's good debate. Good debate. There are tantric sects, though, and you should know there are many sects in tantra that are closed because they are initiation-based lineages. So remember, there is a text, it's called the Shiva Dharma from the 12th, uh, 8th century. And it says in line nine, it says, even a foreigner who practices sincerely is highest than the highest Brahmin. You know, so get this, there's an 8th century text from Kashmir that is admitting that there is no caste boundary, there is no race boundary. But you can learn mantra, and that mantra will not have an effect for you if you don't have the initiation. So in a way, I, I don't know if you know about Reiki, but you can't just start using Reiki. You need to be initiated to Reiki. And at first I was skeptical about that, and then I did the whole thing, and I was like, oh, I, I get it now. So it is important that you recognize certain tantric sects require initiation. It's known as diksha, formal initiation. And usually if you get diksha, the guru will look at you and determine whether or not you are fit for the diksha. And this is not based on caste or anything else. It's based on adihara, meaning your spiritual grade. So a guru might not take you on just because you don't meet that guru standard of spiritual enough. You know, so there, there is certain things that lock you out. You know, there are gurus that won't take you. If you read Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, he talks about Swami Sri Yogteshwar kicking someone out of the ashram. And his line was, ah, the world, the cruel world must be his guru still. <laughs> the idea is if you met your guru today, you won't benefit. You won't even recognize your guru. If you saw Jesus in a supermarket, you might <laughs> You know? I, would not, I would not want to see that i'm sorry <laughs> he's just such a simple guy he's so unassuming you know assuming he's historically around like he, he would have just been in a smock smiling at you be like cool chill guy but you wouldn't trader have really extraordinary what's that Corey? he'd be in trader joe's probably probably whole food <laughs> <laughs> but um but um the point is the guru doesn't show up until your eyes are ready. Like, let he with ears hear, let he with eyes see, you know? He who has eyes see, it's like that. So yes, Hinduism can be considered closed if you consider the esoteric practices as requiring a certain level of preparation in you, the seeker, before they come to you. But you are always invited to the party. You know, the gods are highly idiosyncratic. You can choose, mix and match. (laughs) 
You can paint your own because we don't actually believe the gods exist. Well, okay. I'm a non-dualist. Of course I'd say that. A dualist mm. might, you know, go back to that video. I guarantee you they're probably a Vaishnava, probably like Krishna oriented. <laughs> they can be a bit jealous and possessive of their religion, but everyone else is chill. Mm-hmm. So adding on to what uh, Corey asked, you know, if you want to be a yogi, you can, and you said the guru will show up when the time's right. Is that like a, like a conscience, a conscience, a uh, um, inner decision? Like, yes, I want to do this. And then, or it just kind of happens. Like if you were meant for it, it'll find you either, like either way it's mapped out for you. Yeah. For, first, let me just say that all of you in this room right now have received your um, initiation. It's obvious. It's painfully clear on all of your faces. Um, and it's called a Shakti Pata. So in a way, Laura, you, there's nothing you can do to get a Shakti Pata, which means a descent of power. There's nothing you can do to wake up. It happens to you. It happens through a spontaneous process. It's some people call it grace. Who gives you the grace? You give it to yourself in the grander scheme of things. But it just happens. One day you notice, you just become interested in this stuff. Maybe you always were, but you notice that some, at some point in your life where you just wanted to eat better. You just wanted to like figure out what things were about. You spent more time reading. Yes. Yeah, like that, what happened? Yes, Abby? Oh, I think it's funny because I, I had some friends in college who were all um, pretty spiritual, but they had all had a lot of like... Sh- hardships in their life and they were like confused because I I mean every life is hard and is suffering but um compared to them I hadn't gone through as many things and so they were always like why are you like like this I'm like I don't know and so you saying that is kind of fun because it shows you know like I and it's not to say it's bad their way is better than my way but I just think it's interesting how that's yeah I, I never knew that yeah, remember Abhinava Gupta says in no uncertain terms, this is not something you can earn by merit. There's no yeah, amount exactly. of ritual, purification, yoga that you can do for it. And it does, since it doesn't concern merit, uh, concern itself with merit, an absolute rogue who's never practiced spirituality in her life will get it. And a person who's gone through all this hardship won't. <laughs> That's the <laughs> irony. So it is, yeah, past life stuff. Who knows how it happens, but it has to happen. Otherwise, nothing I say will make sense to you. Before a Shakti Pata experience, you just won't get it. And you'll meet people in your life who just don't get it. They don't get why you're on a spiritual path. They're like, can't you just be like everyone else and just drink beer and watch TV? Don't you just want to climb the corporate ladder? (laughs) Sounds horrible. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You can't go back to that because someone gave you a red pill, you know, and now you're like stuck in between the matrix and the real world. So um, that's when you start to do stuff. So when you have your Shakti Pata, you become a mystic. Whatever tradition you belong in, you're a yogi, you're a Sufi, you're a Gnostic Christian mystic, whatever it is, you need a Shakti Pata first. It's been documented in every major religion. And then your Shakti Pata causes you first to seek out books and then people. And you know what's funny? You'll find that they come to you. The books just find you. The people find you, you know? And someone was here today who was like, I've been looking for you all night. You know, they're just like so excited when they meet other people. And it's like, yeah, we've been looking for you too. <laughs> <laughs> Finding your soul tribe. 
But it's yes. crazy because up until that point, it feels like the most lonely, isolating experience, you know, going through a spiritual awakening or a dark night of soul, whatever you want to call it. It's probably like the most isolating thing I've ever been through. And, you know, I've said that I've been through, you know, depressive episodes, all that stuff. And, you know, that can be lonely. And I grew up a melancholic kid. So I'm used to those, um, to that world. But that spiritual awakening is probably, <laughs> it was, I, I can't, I don't have the words to describe how it felt like even the words that I use is not enough to describe what it was to feel to go through that. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just now coming on the tail end of it, but it felt like it was just not going to end. And you just felt like what is going on? What is like, I'm literally in a dark cement cube and it's just like, everything's just going. I I just don't, I don't, I'm at a loss of words to even describe it. It's just crazy. I just never expected to, have to go through something like that but when i would try and describe it to my friends they it would just go over their heads they're like they can't conceptualize what it is that i'm experiencing right now yeah precisely even if they could there are some friends with good imaginative abilities who are like yeah you're seeing the gaps i cool they can't understand why you would or why would you want to you know mm-hmm. so i get sometimes it's funny, if you notice our group, like every time you come on Monday and you get to know the people here, you'll notice something very strange. There is something incredibly similar about everyone here, you know? And it I, I don't know why this happened the way that it did, but almost everybody that I meet is a non-dualist tantrika, or at least they don't know it yet, but they are. <laughs> you know, they all gravitate towards a certain spiritual philosophy. And it just so happens to be the spiritual philosophy that I was raised in. I don't think that's an accident, you know? Mm. No coincidences. No. For me, when I, when I was... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Maybe everything is a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that line in New Girl where the guy's like, everything happens for a reason. And yeah, that reason is random chance. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> Yeah, so oh. I, I watched like Roxanne interact with Claire. Claire, who is a spiritual master, so lucky to have her. But like Roxanne, interact, like it's just so crazy to see how everybody has something that helps everyone else. And it's just so cool to see all these vectors coming together. So your Shaktipata will do that. In a way, it changes your lens. So it filters reality for you such that you're only selecting for things that are resonating on that level. It's disequilibrating. Friends will fall away. Patterns will fall away and you might feel a little frightened and scared about it. You become a yogi when you take responsibility for your Shaktipata. So people can have Shaktipatas and most of the time you have no choice but to pursue spirituality. Some people let it fall by the wayside though, but you become a yogi when you start to ask the question, what happened to me and give me more. (laughs) So in a way you get kind of addicted to this reality. You just want authenticity and reality and you start to become curious about what's going on inside you. And you're more interested in you and this subject of your own experience of life, right? Yeah, I was going to comment on that because um, I feel like right now I'm at a stage where I'm very attached to my ego. um, And it's it's funny because I find myself being egotistical when I ask you for a question. I'm like, I know I'm asking this because it's going to help me analyze myself. And so it's kind of an interesting dichotomy of like, okay, maybe this can help everyone else in the group. And I want it to help everyone else in the group, but I also need to figure this out for myself. And so it's just interesting that you said that. 
I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. It does. Or not. Absolutely, it does. yes. Because I don't want it to be selfish. But, but oh, sorry. Go ahead. As long as it's both or neither, it should be all right. Okay. <laughs> if you're saying it for your own benefit and for the benefit of the group, then there you go. It's both. Yeah, yeah but then that, that's that's why it's egotistical though, because I'm like judging myself for um, for wanting to figure it out for myself and feeling like I'm taking up time of everyone else's, and that's what. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. So thank you. I just want to put that out there because I that's what I kind of need to hear, I guess. Yes. And that's why I get flustered a lot when I talk in this group. (laughs) I feel that. I feel that. And remember, the Bodhisattva vow is kind of a good psychological tool to help with that because Mm -hmm. you're pointing at something very beautiful, Abby. And I think I'd really, really want to stress, as Travis said, that nobody's in a hurry here. Most of us don't believe Mm -hmm. in. (laughs) <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah. you can take your time and ask questions and about this like i said nistress is gonna go on and mm-hmm. while this dancing monkey has some breath <laughs> let him answer your questions put him to some service you know <laughs> I have no but thank you uh, remember the bodhisattva vow which is and addressing this point a lot of people feel selfish when they go on a spiritual quest especially mothers mm. you know, mothers because laura i'm sure you'll uh, agree that like women are specifically socialized for role fulfillment women are like punished by society for going off on a quest of self-discovery men have a little bit more you know the gender roles the way it fell it's like men have a little more room to just kind of fuck off to the himalayas and spend some time find themselves and come back you know (laughs) so yeah like love yes it's it's normal for you know it, it's normal for like the guys to just go back to like being how they were. But if mom tries to find self-identity, you know, or yes. I find that a lot of what got me into yoga um, on my path was that was the only time I got to be alone, <laughs> you know, and rediscover that. Cause so much of your identity pours into being a mother, uh, which is uh, its own crazy circle of things and working through, you know, who you are and who you are now and so, it, yeah, it's definitely a lot of hard work, but it's worth it. <laughs> and I mean, it was going back yeah. to like coming full circle with what we we're saying about um, being lonely on um, your spiritual awakening. It, it's it's so true. The best way that when you were saying, Corey, you didn't know how to put it into words for me personally, it was there was times where honestly, I just would think I wish I could like undo this. Like, I just wish yes. that I could go back to like, where I could just watch all this television and like eat all this stuff and just like be completely ignorant. Yeah. Just, yeah. Like I I could just go back to being asleep basically. Like I don't want to deal with this. It felt kind of like I was saying,